1: Welcome to episode 197 with my guest, Chris Gethard. I'm Paul Gilmart, and this is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod is also the uh, Twitter handle you can follow me at and uh go check out the website there is a form you can join you can fill out surveys you can see how other people filled out surveys and those of you that are regular listeners know the surveys are a big part of the show and it's where a lot of people dump their uh their secrets and their pains and their struggles and uh um many of them quite eloquently, eloquently. <laughs> it was bet- between elegantly and eloquently. Yeah, eloquent. It was very eloquent of you. Um, so yeah, go check out the website and um, let us get to it. I think yeah, I think that's. Oh, I want to mention that I'm going to be in Toronto um, Saturday, November fifteenth, uh, as part of the Rendezvous with Madness Film Festival, and I'm going to be interviewing um, former NHL goalie Clint Malarchuk. And I think the show is at seven o'clock, and I'll put a link on my website to uh, to get tickets. But if you if you Google uh, "Rendezvous with Madness," um, and then just click on schedule, you'll find it. And there's a link there um, where you can either call the box office or you can order them online. Um, and I'm also going to be. At the Food and Wine Festival in Dubuque, Iowa, I'm not going to be performing, but I'm just, do, you know, kind of milling around, being a, <laughs> being a pig, uh, eating food, and uh, that is uh, that would be good to have that date before you opened your fucking trap, Paul. I want to say, the first week of November, second week of November, first week of November. God damn it. I am not going to get up and go find out what that is. I'm not. Uh, If you you just (laughs) Google the Dubuque uh, wine festival on the river, and uh, then go fuck yourself. How's that grab you? Let's get to some surveys before I completely self-implode. Ivy's come in to make fun of me. Uh, This is from The Struggle in a Sentence. This is filled out by a guy who is in his 50s, and he calls himself fraud, fraud, I'm a fucking fraud. So you know he's brimming. He's brimming with... uh, This is my brother from another mother. About his depression, he writes, just slip into a deep, dark pit where I can barely move or breathe. It eventually passes. Codependency. I think the misses and I are, but I can't exactly define how. And his handicap is adult-onset epilepsy, which he's had since 23 and it's controlled by meds, and uh, he write, a snapshot from his life. He writes, because of the epilepsy, I stopped driving in 1989. The wife says, I love people who want to refer to it, the wife, the old ball and chain. The wife says she'll take me anywhere I want to go, but I want to go uh, wherever and whenever I want for five minutes or five hours. Everything has to be set up like a fucking play date. It just infuriates me to think about it. Um, because I stopped driving, I stopped playing in bands. I used to play all over, even in showcases in New York city, a place I love, but have only visited twice in the last 20 years. Um, I hate my shitty job, but I have health care, which I need because my seizure meds cost thousands of dollars a month with no prescription plan. At least I have little hassle except the disdain of my coworkers with whom I have nothing in common. Uh, my reality hits me every day with the epilepsy and the no driving and the eternal need for healthcare, and I just sink. My world is gray. The buildings, people, trees, the whole world around me is tinged with the color gray. I just don't care about anything. But the coach, the Catholic part of my brain, tells me what a pussy I am, tells me to straighten the fuck up, and at least I'm being I'm not being tortured and killed in the Sudan, so what do I have to complain about? I've considered suicide countless times over the years, a 10-minute walk from my office to the nearest bridge, but the coach tells me to hang in there, make the bastards kill you, don't give up, rah-rah, so I sit and wait for the darkness to pass. I've considered counseling, but the missus says I don't need it. I can tell her anything i'd really like to get into counseling but i don't feel like fighting about it i don't feel like fighting about anything money sex the future so nothing gets done thanks for listening you know the first thing that struck out stuck out at me is um your your wife probably has uh, a lot on her plate in addition to you um because you are her you know her mode of transportation but uh it sounds extremely codependent to me that she doesn't want you, she's fighting you about going to therapy. No, fuck what anybody else thinks, dude. You want to go to therapy, fucking go to therapy and don't let somebody wear you down because a lot of times it's like the spouse who is willing to go toe-to-toe longer winds up getting a foothold in that relationship and getting everything they want. And it might not even be conscious, but in your brain, you don't have the energy, probably because you're depressed, to go toe-to-toe. But you don't have to win an argument to go to therapy. Just fucking go. That was pretty good of me. That was very elegant. This is filled out by, and and I can't imagine the burden of living with uh, epilepsy and not being mobile uh, yourself. I didn't want to minimize that at all. I just think that's clearly obvious to anybody who heard your your, your story. And uh, get out there and fucking jam, brother. I'm so uncomfortable that I just said that. This is Struggle in a Sentence, filled out by a transgender uh, female-to-male uh, who calls himself Maxter, and about uh, his depression. Stuck in quicksand and ropes thrown by friends seem like snakes. That's a fucking great one. Are you as secretly a teenage girl in disguise? Because usually the... Uh, as regular listeners know, the, the teenage girls seem to have a way with words in the struggle in a sentence. Um, anxiety. Um, no, actually, alcoholism, drug addiction. The drink you drown your troubles in, it's the trouble you're in now. That's quite profound. Thank you for that. This is filled out by Sam. Uh, he's gay in his 40s and about his uh, depression. Feels like watching a movie of someone else's life, but the ending is just a blank dark screen um alcoholism and drug addiction uh he goes though i'm not alcoholic my parents were and they could only express emotion love hate anger rage sadness when drunk it makes you question every feeling you ever had and every positive word ever said to you wow that's deep and i definitely relate um about his sex addiction. He writes, sometimes I have sex not because I'm interested in the guy but because I want the emotional connection. I hate myself for it afterwards. Fortunately, since starting therapy, the frequency of this is much, much less. And, um, he writes, I spent so much of my childhood chasing, uh, about codependency, chasing affection when I realize I'm chasing someone's attention, desperately wanting them to like me or love me. I feel greasy. Um, Thank you for that, and he is a big believer in therapy. He says, uh, for everyone listening, get in with a good therapist immediately, and it's in caps. Seriously, don't put it off. It'll change your life. I only wish I had discovered therapy at 20 rather than 39. Thank you so much for that, Sam. Oh, hold on. Hold on. Intro accidentally started to kick in. I'm all over the place. Um, this is a same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Stye Young, St. Young, 06, and um, snapshot from her life, a couple of them, trying my first support group and not being able to get out of the car, still can't go back. I eat lunch at my desk daily, avoid the break room like the plague. I can't answer the phone or the door, sometimes even email. I think a lot of people relate to that. Um, but And I'm not making a joke. A lot of times we don't know because they're isolating. That's the hardest thing, man. That's the hardest thing when people feel like sandpaper to be around, to reach out. Um, This is same survey filled out by uh, a guy who calls himself No, the other Ryan. And uh, as far as gender, uh, Ryan writes male. Um, more of a male tomboy slash lesbian um, and is bi uh, about his depression. I could write something, but does it really matter? (laughs) That's so great. Um, He writes, I've tried to reach out to people in the past, but I see the pattern after all these years. They always start out sympathetic. They sincerely want to help. And then I don't get better. Some get tired of it. I can see it on their face and they can't stand to be a burden. uh, And I can't stand to be a burden on such a nice person. Some decide that I must be just using them and staying like this on purpose. They just stop calling back. I don't contact, quote, friends and family anymore because of the former and for fear that they'll become the latter. And I don't blame them for it at all. But every time someone else uh, close gives up on me, it makes it that much harder for me not to just give up altogether. Um... And, you know, my first thought, uh, Ryan, is that it's over their heads. What you're dealing with is too big for somebody that's not a professional and that that should be who you go to first until you can get some momentum and some, some of the sadness and maybe anxiety out because it might be overwhelming to people. And it's not that they don't love you or don't care about you, but they don't know they're not equipped. So it's not that you're not lovable. It's not that you're not lovable. Um, And then this, finally, this one is from a woman who calls herself, or a girl, she's a teenager, calls herself Moth, and she identifies as queer, um, about her depression. Uh, Feels like everyone is watching me drown and throwing rubber ducks while I beg for a lifeboat. Uh, About her anorexia. When my stomach is empty, I feel clean, powerful, numb, like fresh snow on a muddy town. You got these fucking, you teenage girls. Fresh snow on a muddy town. God damn it, that's beautiful. Um, About her mood swings, I'm on my very own personal terrifying roller coaster. I know the plunge is coming, but the view from the top is to die for. And a snapshot from her life, this afternoon on the way home, I saw an ad recruiting people with depression for a paid study. I thought about writing down the contact info, but I was just too tired and apathetic to bother. Oh god, I wish I didn't need to take meds. cried like an animal. It makes me so mad at myself that I do that. The burden of perfectionism. And that's when I got into therapy. Let's talk about that. So I was like,
0: fuck it, I'm alive. I don't give a shit about anything.
1: You are a shining example of what is best about human beings.
0: I'm worried that the uh, Russian militia is coming over the hill. I know that, uh, but uh, Alice, how are you feeling? I'm pretty good. Pretty
1: good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with Chris Gethard. Uh who was recommended many times uh, as, a, as a guest to me by, by listeners. And when I did some research online and uh, kind of saw the body of work and stuff that you've done, especially the letter that you wrote to that back to that kid who um, felt comfortable enough with you to open up yeah. about his life, uh, I was like, oh, I, I, I think I know what they mean, why, why they're suggesting him as a guest.
0: Yeah, it seemed like a good fit. I started having people tell me, oh, you should really be on, be on the show. A similar, similar thing, it sounds like. So I'm glad it's finally happening. That's yeah. really nice.
1: Yeah. I love, too, how when you tweeted me that you were going to be in town, um, you said, if you're bored or you need a guest, I was like, God, that sounds like me. So yeah. afraid that I'm oh, going yeah. to assume I'm worthy yeah. to be a part of somebody's big time project. Yeah. I'm like
0: very legendary for apologizing over and over again and thanking people over. And I was just staying with a friend of mine the past two nights. And he, he finally was like, you have to stop thanking me. It's getting really annoying. Like, it's appreciated, <laughs> but awesome. it's really, really <laughs> annoying how much you're thanking me. Like we've been friends for 10 years. You can stay on my couch. <laughs> That's,
1: uh, um, Kathy, um, God, why am I blanking on her last name? She was in Step Brothers. hilarious actor. Um, God what what is she was she was a guest on the show and I'm fucking totally blanking on her her name anyway she said that her uh therapist uh is talks about how how her posture is just constantly apologetic and he calls it the hamburgerler oh wow' <laughs> Can you remember how the hamburgerler was always hunched yeah, over yeah <laughs> that's interesting
0: I wonder if the, yeah. I always just thought I had bad posture i wonder if yeah. that's related to my self esteem
1: probably
0: i I once got interviewed. Um, I forget who it was. I got interviewed by someone and it started off by saying I had a questionable posture. That was the first thing that they said was like, this guy hosts a public access show and he's like a nerdy guy with questionable posture. And then it said at the end, the last thing was a quote where I apologized for being boring and I was like, oh, man, I started with bad posture and ended apologizing. That's probably not the best self-promotion mm. that's awesome <laughs> that anybody's ever
1: done. Uh, you're a writer, comedian, uh, an improviser, and uh, and you have your own public access show in New York called The Chris Gethard Show that's very freewheeling. Um, it's uh, just... How would you describe it to somebody who's never seen it?
0: It's kind of like... The show that I would have wanted to watch when I was 15, like a shy, weirdo, 15 year old who was like creative, but maybe like not okay with it. Like it's a weirdo show. It's unpretentious. You can call in and talk to us and each week we just do something different. Sometimes that's just a call on topic. Sometimes we'll do like a bizarre stunt. You know, it's got like definitely inspired by like Letterman and Andy Kaufman and old MTV and and just, like, bizarre, all the old bizarre shows. So I don't know. It's, like, kind of walked a path where came out of the Upright Citizens Brigade world where there was, like, so much success, and for about eight years I've been hearing, like, I'm the next guy who's going to come out of that theater in New York and be (laughs) that guy, and it just hasn't worked out, and that's okay. But at a certain point I just really kind of wanted to stop, you know, just, like, throwing myself against the wall and really do something that was in my own voice because – just found myself fighting so hard to like get on sitcoms and I don't really watch sitcoms I don't really love sitcoms so I was like why am I fighting so hard I'd rather just like be this weirdo New York guy kind of like embraces how strange this city is and signed up for public access and it just kind of turned into its own thing it's been cool it was a very rambly explanation but no no I think it's, it's, it's yeah, great yeah it's like fun and interactive and and rough around the edges and
1: we we like when people call up and become a part of it There was a stunt you did where you hired a kickboxer to uh, kick you every time you missed a question about your friends. (laughs) Yeah,
0: anytime I got a piece of info wrong about my friends. A lot of that, you'll see, like, if you go back and watch a lot of the early episodes, we we figured out what we were doing just like anything more and more along the way, but as far as mental health stuff goes, you can see in a lot of our early episodes, so many of the episodes are me being, like, physically beaten up for stuff. It's just, like, very... It's interesting, because I, like can actually watch the episodes and at one point i like in my real life not on the air obviously i broke up with this girl and like got into a much better place in my personal life and all of a sudden the episodes where people are like hitting me with wiffle bats just stop because like a lot of the um self-induced pain just wasn't as necessary in my life anymore (laughs) it's definitely like a, an art project where you can see how I'm feeling right under the surface a lot of the time. <laughs> Fair to say, you had become self-sufficient. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> Providing
1: your own pain. Oh yeah, oh yeah.
0: For other people's amusement, I like yeah. going on stages
1: and cameras and hurting myself and having other people laugh at it. Uh, you're a big fan of the Smiths, and you have two Morrissey, yeah. Morrissey tattoos, which I think. We could probably wrap the interview up right here. Yeah, that's I think it, that's right? all.
0: How many people have you interviewed who are Smiths fans? I would uh, say this.
1: Jen Kirkman is a huge, oh, huge Smiths right. fan. Yeah, I
0: would. I would bet that per capita, like, this has the highest median interviewees who at some point loved the Smiths. I would, I would have to imagine more than bet. any
1: other podcast. Yeah, I would. Uh, I would bet, and also I think a lot of um, uh, the demographic. Uh-huh. Uh, tends to be more female than male, and I think another uh, person that they probably like a lot is Kathleen Hanna. Uh, I get that. I, I imagine a lot, oh, yeah, a lot of people. Have you seen uh, punk punk rock singer? The documentary yeah, about it, her. It's about Netflix. Yeah yeah it's I was it's awesome I had no I had no idea who she was I had no idea that she was the one that inspired the, the girl
0: yeah uh, riot girl
1: riot girl yeah uh, movement super cool
0: yeah I was married to one of the guys from Ad rock yeah, yeah so uh, hearing her reconcile her like feminist beliefs with marrying the guy who wrote the song girls was really a very fascinating part of that it's documentary
1: cool. we're all complicated but yeah let's get uh, let's get to to you and sure and your uh, your story, where's a good place to start? I guess
0: for the purpose of this, I would start. I don't know, like I. Uh, oh, and by the way, where can people find the the
1: Chris Gethard uh, show? You can g- the best place? go
0: to the the Chris Gethard and my last name is spelled like Gethard, um, which is probably a good starting I, point I as well. I never noticed that. Yeah, the Chris Gethard It's pronounced Gethard. It's spelled Gethard. But uh, yeah, as you can imagine, with that name. Uh, kind of rough it was weird like I guess the place to start is the town where I grew up because it's weird like my parents they just celebrated their 40th wedding anniversary nicest people in the world gave us a really nice house like grew up we were pretty poor growing up but they never really we didn't really know the gravity of that like they did a really good job protecting us It was like everything outside our house like a lot of it I think I, a lot of I think a lot of stuff with me is A prone to it a, a lot you know a lot of alcoholism in my family um, Any in your direct family no, my my grandfather was a brutal alcoholic, and uh, his generation of our family were all kind of legendarily messed up. Like, my my parents tell me a story, like, when my mom and dad started dating, there was one day where my dad showed up to pick up my mom for a date, and my grandfather tried to fight him on their front lawn, like, fist fight him. Like, it was bad. And my, my mom saw a lot. On her side of the family, so she wanted a house that had no booze in it. There was never a beer in our fridge the whole time I was growing up. Like, if there was like some sort of party or family gathering, they'd bring it in for that, so my uncles could have a drink. Otherwise, it was out. And then on my father's side, I didn't know any of this until after things kind of fell apart for me. My father's side, after I went into treatment for the first time, you know, I had to ask about my family history, and I knew about all the alcoholism on my mom's side, but my, I found out my grandfather on my dad's side had actually been institutionalized for a while. Um, which I'd never known growing up, but it made a lot of sense like he was we lived across the street from a very tight-knit Irish neighborhood and Grew up across the street from him and he was he was pretty nuts And I always thought that was charming when I was a kid I always thought he was like this funny old man, but then thought about it from the adult perspective and it was like oh no He like had a complete breakdown at some point. I had a great uncle who like Basically shit out his liver at one point like the journey oh was God. bad and, then, and the other side of the family sadly before YouTube Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it would have been a viral hit but yeah, so my my dad's dad was, was uh, I look at it too, he lived across the street and after my grandmother died, I didn't go inside his house for like seven or eight years. He told me it was haunted by my grandmother's ghost and it was because he was so depressed. He wanted to be left alone. Um, so there was a lot. There was like a kind of perfect storm there. and
1: So alcoholism on one side, metal illness on the other. Yeah,
0: like pretty pretty custom built to have some stuff. And then, you know, growing up, we grew up in this neighborhood, very working class. And it's just kind of rough. It was the 80s and 90s. and like, What was the neighborhood? Or it was, was it? Uh, grew up in a town called West Orange, New Jersey. And, I've heard uh, of it. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice town. And it's a lot better now. It's divided. There's an area called Up the Hill, which is pretty well to do. And then an area called down the hill, which was a little more rough around the edges. And uh, when we grew up there it was particularly so. both my parents grew up there in the same neighborhood and it's just kinda like a place where you fend it for yourself. But there was a lot like it makes me really happy now how much bullying gets talked about because it was something that had a great effect on my life, like not even directly through me necessarily i took some shit but i have an older brother's two and a half years older than me and uh great dude great dude really hilarious guy and uh he took it on the chin bad he he had it rough he was like the young he was born december 24th and my parents could have held him until the next year they put him in uh-huh. and he was this tiny little guy he wound up having a lazy eye so he was the kid with the patch he mm-hmm. had braces he had a bifocals when he was in third grade like. He was just, it was just like toss him into the fire to throw a kid like that into this like real tough working class neighborhood in this town full of class division. He was just a target. And I mean, like he, uh, you know, he really took it and uh, it was really rough being a couple years behind him growing up and seeing it. And it just made me very, very angry, made me very angry from a young age. Like I was very angry. I got in fights all the time as a kid. And by the time I was in about seventh or eighth grade, I'll I'll never forget, my brother had a friend in high school who came over our house and I was just sitting in our backyard kind of staring at the ground. And he was the first person who ever, he was like, hey man, like what's going on? You all right? And it was the first time I was like, oh, other people are noticing what I'm kind of knowing about myself, which is that something's really off. Like it was really dark and I was just like very angry. I mean, like, One of the things that I don't was there
1: sadness in there with the anger? Was it mostly
0: just anger? Real sadness. Real sadness. When I was younger, it was pretty dominated by anger, and then college is when the sadness really just like a tidal wave of it hit. And that seems to be really common for people. Yeah, yeah. Sadness and paranoia, like real severe paranoia in college. But you kind of like grow up in a family that's prone to having some issues between the alcoholism and the mental illness. And you see a bunch, like my brother, he once got beat up so bad that a bully broke his collarbone. Like real bullying, real severe, not not just a buzzword. And we went to this school system too that was nuts because my I remember my mom went down after that. He got beat up that bad. She went down to the school and she's like, what are we gonna do about this? And the school's policy was like, well, the kid who did it, he has a real bad home life. If so we, if, we, if we get him in trouble, his parents are going to beat him. And my mom was like, well, there has to, So there's just no, no consequence. There's no consequence to this. A kid gets a bone broken. So I was a few years younger than that watching that. And it was just
1: like, wow, okay. I need to like... Kind of. Justice in this world I'm entering. Yeah,
0: and it kind of made me as a young man kind of go through starting in junior high. It kind of made me go through life like looking for fights, like assuming bad stuff was coming and I better be ready to just like lash out. So there was a lot of, uh, a lot of just like physical fighting and also just like burning bridges, keeping people at arm's length. Like, was like always, always had friends, always like. Kept myself insanely busy though. When I look back at high school, I was in any after school activity I could do, whatever I could do to like not slow down, because every time I would kind of slow down or just have a day where I'd go home,
1: fall into just like a pit. So that was kind of the. It still seems to be the case with you. I was looking at your Wikipedia page and you're uh, a very busy guy who yeah, takes on a lot of projects. I always,
0: always keep myself very busy. And um, I think a lot of that i got i got lucky in that in high school i had this teacher the 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 woman who taught the drama classes in our school pulled me aside and she was like you're kind of a wise ass i think you should take my drama class and i was like i don't know i don't know if that's for me and she's like just trust me i'll make it worth your while and then i'm tired of getting beat up yeah
1: take a drama class yeah that'll take the heat
0: off but she did all improv games it was all improv and it was the first time where i realized like oh like in this school where it's not it was it was not a great school, I don't think anybody who lives in that town would would argue that, especially in that era, and a lot yeah like a lot of just like brushing stuff under the rug, and then all of a sudden, there was one teacher who was like, "You have this manic energy that goes in all these different directions, but really." You should channel it into some creativity. Oh, wow, what a great teacher! Yeah, I, I definitely. Her name is Melissa Blevins. I like still give her so much credit. Every once in a while, I'll send her a real sappy Facebook message. That's just like, thank you, thank you so much. That and, has to mean the world to her. It, uh, yeah, I hope so. I hope she realizes that I'm serious because it really does. Um, it really did. Just to have someone kind of realize, like, okay, like, there's a lot of there's a lot of bad shit going on in this school. There's a lot of misdirected energy, but. I get the sense that you might be able to like channel yours towards something that turned a lot of things around for me a lot of things I mean it was still a number of years and a lot of bad stuff before I went into therapy for the first time but creativity became the the source when I got to college I joined an improv group and it was all I ever wanted to do Was just like let's get up on stage let's be funny let's put it somewhere and uh, it's bad yeah college college is when it got bad Talk, up, talk about that let's see Like, it, where'd you go to school I went to Rutgers University which is the state school of New Jersey and uh, kind of I look back at it and I had gotten into Fordham I was really excited to go to Fordham University in the Bronx which is like a small uh, Catholic school really good school and then just told my parents one day I said I'm going to Rutgers and Rutgers was my safety school I hadn't really written an essay to get in I had good grades so growing up in New Jersey I have good grades like you know it's state school they'll let you in and my parents were like Rutgers you haven't even like visited and I was like that's where I want to go why, why? It's fine I look back at it and it was a real cry for help it was like a real like I wanted my parents to sit me down and say what is going on. But then I was also very, very good at hiding what was going to get going up. For years, I was able to just convince everybody, anybody who approached me. Part of why I've always kept myself so insanely busy, like you pointed out, is I've always been like, okay, I got like nine things going on. And if the people from this one thing sit me down and say like, you seem like you're in trouble or having a tough time, I can go like, no, 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 I'm fine. And then focus on the other eight things and ignore that ninth thing and just kind of bounce around and
1: but but why Why? and by the way Rutgers should put that on their brochure Uh, Chris Gethard going to (laughs) Rutgers was a cry for help total cry for help (laughs) total cry for help why help me understand why choosing that school was a cry for help
0: well it was it was I got in I applied to three schools and got into all three and it was the least prestigious one I see and i hadn't visited it and had shown no interest in it and showed a lot of enthusiasm for this other school and that was probably when i was a junior in high school or so and then my senior year i just started to feel really awful and i think i kind of, i think it was like very much self sabotage on my end to go to this place that wasn't nice. And especially, they've actually, I will say, I'll give that school credit, they've fixed it up a lot. It's a much nicer place when you drive around. In 1998, like, it was pretty beat up. It was not a pleasant place to be. And I just, like, chose to go there. I think it was really, like, definitely fueled by some self-sabotage. And, and uh, I was kind of hoping someone would sit me down and be like, what is going on? Like, why, why are you just, like, okay with the third best option? Like, why aren't you excited anymore about these things you used to be excited by so I think that was what I was hoping people would notice and uh some stuff like that came up but nothing serious and then when I got there it became brutal it became really brutal pretty quickly um brutal in what way uh like like you said I think it is common for that age but the depression got bad fast like I know I had this girlfriend in high school who also went to Rutgers and we stayed together and she started to notice I would always get like anxious and start rubbing my legs and just not be able to talk to people like we'd go to parties and I'd be fine one second and then all of a sudden all these physical ticks would start and I'd just kind of like shut down and then be shaking and she'd have to get me out of there and be like what happened and I'd be like I don't know I don't know just like anxiety and just nerves and 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 I also I got I mean like I would stay up for days at a time just to see what happened. And, and I got to a point with
1: paranoia where like... Every, Were you forcing yourself to stay up? Yeah, just sort of like... So it wasn't bipolar mania? No, it was,
0: it was definitely rooted in some mania. Oh, like okay. Definitely rooted in that. But also was like just this knowing thing of like, I don't have to be doing this and it's just pushing me to a place that's not good mentally or physically. And got to a point too where like, I couldn't if anytime I drove a car at night, I'd wind up just like shaking afterwards because... I would convince myself the car behind me was a cop who was going to pull me over. I was I would be convinced from start to finish. If I drove 5 minutes, if I drove 3 hours, I'd be convinced the car behind me was a cop. I would get on the bus when it got really bad. I'd get on the bus at Rutgers and it had like the tape you'd push and I wouldn't push it cuz I would be convinced someone could like track me wow. at that point and I was it was this weird thing where I was aware like
1: I know there's no one tracking me, but I still can't bring myself I, to push the thing. I can't I, do it. You I know? have a friend who describes that exact same thing. He's been diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. Oh, fascinating. I've never heard of that one. Yeah, and it it's kind of like a combination of the paranoia of uh, – I don't know if it would be the paranoia of, of schizophrenia um, combined with the uh, depression – of uh, bipolar. That sounds like probably I was in a phase like that at some point.
0: That's cool to be diagnosed 12 years later, unofficially. <laughs> oh, I'm
1: the, trust me, I'm not trying Please. to diagnose I'm you. I'm the same saying, way. I'm, I'm the same way, though. Yeah, I'm just saying it It, it sounds yeah. exactly like my friend who describes that. And it's a fucking hellish roller it was, coaster. It's, bad.
0: it's like really actually scary. It's so scary to understand this is not real, but still I won't do it it's almost in some ways i don't know if this is true you know everybody would probably say look at other people but i'm like i'd almost rather be totally in belief that someone was following me cuz it was terrifying and like i remember reaching out i remember i had an ra who I was pretty close with and i remember reaching out to her at one point and saying like i think i'm in trouble i think i need help she was like what's going on and i was i had hit a point where i was like i'll be in class and my thoughts will just start to go and they'll get kind of like faster, and it'll be like I'm listening to my thoughts instead of thinking them. Like I'm hearing my thoughts go, and I'm aware that I, they're not things I really think or believe, and I don't know how to stop it. Like, is, that,
1: is that what people call voices?
0: It wasn't they... voices. I was aware it was my own internal monologue, but I'd start, it would get like real manic, and it would be this sort of thing where, like, in my head, it would, like I'd be bored in class, and I'd be like, you know, when I get home, my roommate's like, I don't know. I don't want to deal with them. We've been fighting lately and maybe, I don't know, maybe I should just fucking like move out or like, maybe I should just like throw all my fucking shit in the hallway. And then I'd be in my own head. Like, I'm not going to put all my shit in the hallway. And then I would hear it go like, I should, I should put all my shit in the hallway, almost like a golem type thing yeah. where again, I wasn't losing it enough that I was, I was aware like, that's, that's nuts. That's not good that I can't, that I am aware that I have to like jump in on my own thoughts and stop them and redirect them, and then they'll sort of sprawl out again. And I remember turning to her, I was really scared, and she was just like, Yeah, I don't know, good luck. And I think it was one of the scariest things for me that I would have to imagine a lot of people have is like to reach out to someone and have it not click or not embrace, to like finally be like, I think I need help and I'm going to reach out to someone, and then to have it go away or brush aside or be a near miss so scary
1: so so scary my heart goes out to people who've who've done that and i I know it's hard for them to hear this but i always say just keep reaching out you there's so many people who are equipped to talk to speak the you know quote-unquote language of the heart um and who have you know somewhat of a grasp on mental illness um that they're there. It's just, it may not happen. Yeah. Uh-huh. And especially if you have a bad, um, a rapport with therapist. Yes. It's a, it, I was
0: just going to say, people say that to me all the time. Like I tried to go to shrink, but to he a was, different one. he was, he was like, he was cold. I'm like, yeah, there's 95 others under your health insurance plan. Go try. My shrink is nuts. My shrink is insane. I love her to death though. She does not play by any medical rules. She's the best. It's the best. Talk about that some more. She's great. She's the best. I don't think she would mind me talking about it. She, like... She's come to see shows of mine, which is not... I don't think it... That's technically my workplace. Like, your shrink shouldn't show up at your workplace. And yeah. there was one time she was at a show and my parents were there. Excuse me. And they lived near each other in New Jersey and she got a ride home from them. Like, my shrink has been alone in a car oh my with mind. my parents. Like,
1: God, not good, so, right? No,
0: that's so inappropriate. So inappropriate. But for me, it works. Like, the last time... I had just to jump back like by my senior year of college I was actually getting to a point where I was like Let putting me myself interrupt in danger one second. Is, yeah. is
1: she a psychiatrist or a therapist she any, ther- any
0: psychiatrist listening have probably yes she's a nurse practitioner she's okay. like a hazy middle ground okay. I have friends who are, work in mental health and when I describe her behavior they'll be like she's a nurse she's a nurse practitioner isn't she and I'm like yeah and I guess they have a reputation for being kind of on the fringe kind of play by their own rules but she's great is she able to prescribe meds she is yeah okay. i'm on lamictal and wellbutrin high five lamictal yeah. over
1: here i love it it's yeah. great no yeah. side effects did you so you didn't experience hypomania when you first started taking it i didn't no. oh, Okay. No. she no. did there was a stretch into the last
0: time i had like a major incident was 2012 it's really scary part of it was she did she thought maybe I had some like ADD or OCD type stuff and she was like maybe if we put you on Adderall it'll like help you avoid getting into situ rather than digging out of a hole maybe it'll help you avoid going into the hole and it was a really bad call and it helped lead to a really bad night at the end of a bad summer it was it was 2012 it was rough it was rough
1: when do you when do you want to get into that I don't know. Do you go? Do you want to go
0: chronological and lead up to it, or just you know, jump around?
1: I've tried to go chronologically, yeah. and it just doesn't. A lot of times, it just doesn't feel organic. And the, yeah. the downside of that is I lose threads all the time. But you know, this is yeah. this. Uh, this is a good way for me to deal sure. with my perfectionism. Well, and I, can, to, I I'll say. I guess maybe the way to say it would be this: is
0: like I've had I've had three major incidents five years apart each time which is either coincidence or means i need to brace myself for 2017 i can't tell (laughs) but um and the good thing like the worst probably the everything in college basically built to this incident where i uh i had been cutting myself a little bit and uh that got really dark where would you cut uh i would cut on my forearms like on the like around around the corner from my wrist you know and i had i had like uh my whole senior year i had like a scar here that i would always just like pick it back open with the edge of a knife i would just like not let it heal
1: why did you choose that part of your body
0: i don't know i think I, if i remember right i think i cut my arm at work and then just kept using it just kept opening it up Mm -hmm. so I think it kind of occurred naturally but I think I had some fascination with the idea that it was like right here and then a few inches away I knew like this was death you know what I mean like I knew that this was the part that would kill me and I was right there and I remember once doing that I was sitting in my room in the dark and one of my roommates came in and he was like dude what's going on why are you just sitting in the dark and then he turned on the light and I was bleeding and he was like how the fuck did you get that cut and I lied I was like work whatever blah 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 so that year was getting bad and then at the end of that year probably the probably the worst that got for me was I, I had this incident where i uh i didn't crash a car on purpose but i realized like i didn't stop myself i was in a situation where i could have hit the brakes kind of opted not to you know kind of was like okay it'll just be a car accident you know
1: and that was did you want to die or did you just want to uh, feel the
0: punishment no I, that that was that was i was well aware this could kill me like i I crashed i this truck was in front of me and he went to turn and then he turned off his signal and started to go straight again and i had been going around him and i realized like oh i'm gonna hit him and i just let it happen like i could have hit the brakes i knew it was going on and he uh we were in this suburban neighborhood. We were still going fast, though. It's like one of these streets in Jersey where it cuts through the whole town so people fly, even though it's just one lane in each direction. And I wound up driving into this wall that divided this guy. This, it was like a terraced lawn that had like a retaining wall, and I hit that, went up in my car, bounced down and like almost like the seatbelt caught right before I hit my head on the steering wheel. And I remember, I remember like feeling like thinking like, is my, are my brains going to go that way or that way? If the steering wheel knocks them out, like it was really, I was very calm about it, but I was aware that it was really bad. And the door, the car was totaled completely. Car never was driven again. And I remember, I remember the door had caved inward and there were all these like, like metal things where I was like, Oh, if I like, had landed three inches further to the left those would be in my guts right now and it's really bad and then the driver of the car he got out and he was like yelling at me threatening to beat me up and then the guy who lived in the house whose lawn we were on he came out he's like dude leave him alone he's just a kid he's just a kid. and all these housewives all these jersey housewives were coming like it's all these i was sitting there and I just heard, I think back to it, and it makes me laugh, like, just heard these voices with that, like, North Jersey Carmela Soprano instinct, just going like, is he dead? Oh my god, is he dead? Is he dead? And I was sitting in my car, and I was like, am I? Like, am I a ghost? Like, am I dead? And this guy starts yelling, I'm gonna fuck you up, get out of the car, I'm gonna fuck you up. Then I hear this other voice, like, whoa, calm down, he's a kid, he's a kid, look at him. And then the guy who I hit, he he. Got in his truck he drove away i don't know why i have no idea why i caused the accident i don't know what it was but he got out of there i got out of the car i was in total shock this was one of the worst this is the worst moment of probably the worst day of my life i turned to the guy i'm like oh you i think you saved me like thank you like thank you and without missing a beat the dude he puts his hand on my shoulder and like tenderly and i i this is me quoting a man he goes don't worry man i wasn't gonna let a nigger beat up a white guy and oh i was just my like God. it's like already in this point where i'm like i just almost i just tried to die then almost got beat up now i'm saved by a fucking racist just like oh what, is what, what is this day what is this world what is yeah, this it world? Was such a fucking bad mix of emotions and It was was a few months after that that I finally went into... That day was... That was the first day ever. I got home and my parents sat me down and they were like, this thing where you get up at seven in the morning and you go to work and then you go and do comedy shows and then you stay out with your comedy friends and you get home at one in the morning and you get up at seven again and you're angry all the time and you don't talk to anybody at dinner. I was living with my folks still. They are like, and you don't talk to anybody when you come home and... They were like, "Whatever's going on, it needs to stop. It has to." And I remember that was the first time they really like gave it to me like that.
1: Did they ask you at at that point? Previous to that point, had they tried to pull whatever was in you out? Had they tried to say so much? I tell you, we like we grew up in like
0: you know very Catholic. Working class, like, you keep your problems to yourself and you just tough it out, you know? And I think there was a little bit of that going on. That's how both my parents were raised. So would
1: it be fated, fair to say that you didn't feel felt, even though you knew your parents loved you and cared about you, you didn't feel like the inner you was being seen? And I think, and- it, you know,
0: thinking back on it, I would say I was aware they were concerned and that made me feel both guilty and weak. You know, like, I should be able to fight through this. Because I was aware. I'm like, I'm a 22-year-old kid. I'm a 22-year-old white male whose parents are still married and happy with each other. Like, I should be fine. So I was aware, like, I should be fighting
1: through this. I, you know, I was... And Chris, I, I can't tell you how many people I hear from who struggle to have compassion for themselves because of what you just described, because nobody's being molested or beaten. They think that it's a weakness on their part, and their pain is every bit as valid as somebody who is being, you know, quote-unquote abused in a stereotypical way. The absence of nurturing from parents, the absence of feeling um, seen and felt and protected, is every bit as as traumatic to a kid. And in many ways, I think more so because you don't have incidents that you can point to. It's a lack of yeah. something that is good as opposed to an abundance of something that is bad. But they both make us feel that we're fucked up and we, on a certain level, we don't really matter.
0: Yeah. And I think, like I was saying before about some of the other stuff, it's that... It's also that nasty thing where it's like, I'm feeling all this shit and it's killing me. It's making me not want to be alive. And that's like the emotional feelings that will make me curl up in a ball in the corner of my room. But intellectually, I'm aware that I've got a lot going for me. And that disconnect is like a, at least to me, there was like all the sadness and the anger that I was aware I couldn't control, but then to also intellectually understand that it was this thing was also frightening in its own right. Kind of separate from the, separate from the emotion was also this fear of like, something's broken, something's not mm-hmm. functioning right here, and I know that, I
1: know it shouldn't be like this, I'm aware do you know what, what we, and I'm, I know I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but what we have physically has nothing to do with what we have emotionally. 100%. Nothing. Yeah. And, and that's the confusion, especially in our society, we have is like, I grew up in a great house, you know, yeah. I, I have my own bedroom. You know, my parents, we had dinner every night. Yeah. Uh, they paid for college. I got my own car. How could I be so sad? Yeah. None of that shit. That was is it for me. Anything.
0: Like, my, my dad, he made some money when, I was in high school and it was that thing it was like our family was happy like oh we're through the woods we moved to a better town it was like oh man feeling good and then you know I'd have a couple hours every day where I would just be so just silent and sad and then I'd come out of it and be like what the I why am I the one dragging us down when things are finally getting better you know what
1: do you think the teenage you would have said if your parents had set you down sat you on the couch between them and they both held your hand and they said, Chris, we love you so much. Can you please share with us the pain that's going on inside? I think it would have been, I think it would have been a good thing and I think they... Do you think you would have opened up or do you think you would have stayed shut down?
0: I think ultimately I would have opened up. I think they would have said their very North Jersey version of that and I would have had my very North Jersey acclamation to that where it would be, I don't think they'd say, I don't think they'd hold my hand and say... Nothing can freak us out and I think they'd say I think they would have sat with me and said, like, hey, like, something's up. What's up? Yeah. You know, and I think I would have been like nothing and they would have yeah. been like, stop bullshitting and I would have been like, I'm not bullshitting, and they would have been, You are and then eventually after a long time of that, it would have gotten to that point where I'd just said, I get sad, okay? That's what happens. I get really sad and I get really angry a lot of the time. And I'm not I I kinda lose control of my thoughts. And that I think it would have been good and I'll say too, my parents I'm so close with them now and uh, they feel a lot of guilt. I, I almost feel bad even talking about it because they feel they shouldn't, not because they no, weren't taught it.
1: They weren't taught no how not to at talk all. emotionally.
0: Not only were they not taught how to talk emotionally, they were taught that you handle your own problems and you don't burden other people with your shit. You know, like that I think that's very much like a
1: and you blame Catholic yourself. thing it's and it, so yeah, Catholic. It,
0: very Catholic. Suck and, it up. Yeah, suck it up. Nobody else needs to know your problems. Like, keep it behind closed doors and just fix it. You know, Do you think like,
1: that did you think that's part of the idea of God as a punishing God? I think,
0: yeah. Catholicism, holy shit, man, it's no joke. It is a guilt-driven. Every every. It's a horror movie with glitter. <laughs> every <laughs> every punishment I ever had was like. Guilt-driven psychology.
1: and, and, and let All me, of it. And let, let me say, the bad part of Catholicism, in yes. my opinion. Oh, I know there's sure. a lot of really, really sweet people who walk the walk who are Catholics, so, and it means everything to them, and they take what they like, yeah. and they leave the rest. More power
0: to them. There, and yes. my brother. My brother's still very religious. Um, I'm, My mom, I think, still very much identifies as Catholic. To me... It played right into my issues, this idea that I I remember, I haven't even thought about this in years. I remember one of my early things that I can point to as like kind of this like panic shutdown. I remember when I was in Sunday school, they taught us about like Virgin Mary, how people see the Virgin Mary. And they said a lot of times young people who see the Virgin Mary, they die young. I guess that's been a thing. Is a lot of the people who say they have Virgin Mary sightings have died soon afterwards. Jesus Christ. And I remember staying up that night and just crying, just crying and crying. And it went on for a couple of days. And I remember talking to my parents. I remember talking to my mom and saying, like, they told us that we'd die. If we saw the Virgin Mary. And it, I look back now. I must have been in about fifth grade. That was probably one of the first times that I really lost it, which is really—I have not thought about that probably since fifth grade, which is really, wow, remarkable. Yeah, really remarkable. And I remember, yeah, that the Catholicism didn't work for me because of that. But yeah, so let's pick up the thread then. Um, yeah. So then, 2007, I had another. So 2002, I finally went into treatment went on at that time it was depakote wellbutrin and then i got put on Risperdal, which is like an antipsychotic. And, and what was treatment treatment was i went and started doing talk therapy with a therapist and i found him to be a very cold man but i had this night i tell you i had this night where i was at the ucb theater in new york i was still living at home though i started really young there and i was driving home and i was driving over a bridge in new jersey and i was just offhandedly thought to myself like i should get out and jump I kind of slowed down the car, and then I realized, like, I fucking mean that again, you know? Like, this was after I'd crashed the car and all this, about probably six months after. I told my parents – this is one of the worst things I ever did. I told them I was going to go see a shrink at Rutgers, and then never did it, and they never followed up because of kind of, I think, the nature of our culture. So I had this ex-girlfriend, and she had really seen me at my worst. She would come to my – the girl who I mentioned I went to high school with as well, she really saved my life because she – you know just because we had dated for years she would come to my house sometimes and i'd be like in my underwear crying in bed she she was one of the only people who really saw it she's probably the only person who would who saw that up close when i was a kid because boxer I, boxers or briefs back then boxers now i'm a boxer brief man now i'm a boxer brief man. <laughs> boxer briefs are the best yeah i love them the yeah. best of both worlds baby so I was driving I called her crying in the middle of the night breaking down and she's like and we had, were broken up and not close at this point she's like what's going on And I was like you know I'm, I just uh, I, I'm thinking of hurting myself again and I don't know what to do and it's scaring me and she finally was like she talked me down a little bit while I was driving home and she goes look you call this is having a couple times you call me I've seen this a couple times when we were dating she's like I can't I can't not do anything anymore. She's like, you always tell me you're going to deal with it. And then you never do. You say you're going to go see doctors. You never do. So she goes, you're going to go home tonight. You're going to wake up your mom. My dad was, uh, my dad lived in Puerto Rico at the time for work. So it was just me and my mom in the house. She goes, you're going to wake up your mom. You're going to tell her that you need help. And she goes, you've said before you're going to talk to them. You never do. It's been going on for years. She goes, I'm calling your mom at seven in the morning. And I'm going to tell her. So you better tell her before that, or else I'm going to tell her. And you're going to be furious. Like, you'll be mad at me and mad at yourself. So that's your option, is either you tell her now, or I tell her tomorrow. And is the best thing anyone ever did for me. It's probably the kindest thing anyone has ever done for me, because mm-hmm. she took the choice out of my hands. Isn't you know? it
1: amazing, the form that love can come in? Yeah, it was really
0: beautiful. And I've thanked her for it, and she... She doesn't like it because I think it was such a dark thing for her. But she really, uh, really did save my life in like a not dramatic way. I think I was headed towards really, really bad stuff. It was getting worse and worse, and I was claiming I was getting help and wasn't. And then I went home and I woke up my mom. I just shook her in bed. It was about two in the morning. I had had a midnight show, and it, I had had I had started crying during the show on stage at UCB. I started just crying. Was and, it
1: inappropriate for the scene or well, did you luckily, make it work?
0: Luckily, it was a sketch show where I was wearing a very elaborate costume that involved these googly glasses and a wig. So no one could really tell from the audience. But the other actors were like, dude, what the fuck? Like, what's going on in the green room? You just get off stage for your, your scenes. You go off in a corner and you're like shaking. And then you go back out and you deliver your lines, and you run back here and you start shaking, and crying. It was nuts, you know? So I woke up my mom and I, it was so sad. But it was like it's like one of these moments in my life that I'll never forget. Where I just woke her up and she's like, "What's wrong? What's wrong?" And I was like, "Well, nothing's wrong. Like right now, like immediate. Like it's not. It's not like someone's breaking the house or anything. But like I have real problems." She's like, "What do you mean?" I was like, "I just I have real problems. Like I am sad all the time. Just like I'm very sad most of the time." And she got out of bed and uh she's like yeah like i i know i can tell stuff up like you said you're gonna see a doctor what did they say i was like i never did it like i never did it i got scared or didn't want to or whatever and i don't know what to do because i'm like in trouble i'm really in trouble and and my ex-girl i was like teresa's gonna call you she's gonna tell you it's for real so i gotta just put it on the table i gotta just tell you like I keep telling you I'm gonna get help. I'm not doing it. I need other people to help me because I'm not getting it done. And my mom, I feel so horrible about this till this day. She was just like, are you thinking of killing yourself? And I was like, yeah, like I do. I think about it. I think about that a lot. And I'll never, it was so surreal. We sat there, we were in like the, her house. My brother had moved out. It was just me and her, there was three bedroom house. We were just sitting in the spare bedroom on the bed together, like on the edge of the bed. And she's just like, do you think, should I, should I send you to a hospital? Should we get you in an ambulance and send you to a mental hospital? And I was like, I don't know. I really don't know. And we just like sat there and talked about it. And then eventually she's like, why don't you just go to sleep and we'll talk more in the morning. But it was such a strange night of my life. Like sitting up in the middle of the night talking with my mom about whether she should commit me. Wow. It was so intense. She sounds like a really sweet person. She's the best. And she's dealt with enough... I feel... You know, I shouldn't feel guilt about this. And I think she feels a lot of guilt for not stepping in more actively. But I feel a lot of guilt because she escaped a lot. She escaped a house. Her brother... She has a a brother and a sister who both... Her sister got married the day she was turned 18 and moved to Montana. Her brother joined the Navy when he was 17. They wanted out of this house. It was chaos. My mom fought through that. And then she... And then... I always feel guilty that I put her through that, you know, which is not something she would ask of me, but you can't help but feel it. So, but I'll also say, too, it was also probably the best night of my entire life, I would say, in the sense that both her and my ex-girlfriend, they took the responsibility out of my hands because I was sick, you know, and I always think back to that. I'm like if you knew you had cancer, you wouldn't just not tell anyone and give yourself chemo. You know what I mean? Like it's a lot to ask someone who's sick to be the one to help themselves. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't take that step into a doctor's office. And then I finally did. And I went and uh, first it was just talk therapy with this guy. It was very cold, but I was instantly, very. every week I'd go and I was not getting much out of it. He and I did not click, but he was under my insurance. And i will say too one thing that i hope people really hear if they're listening to this is like just the act of going made me feel so proud it's just like still you know this was 2002 i think that was still an era where it was like north jersey oh you go see a fucking shrink what's wrong with you you know what i mean like it was judged but i would go and every week i'd be like just able to take a breath and just walk in and be like this is the hour a week I'm helping myself and
1: that felt so good it's like it's like learning to ride a bike and those are the first couple of awkward pedals Mm -hmm. and the handlebars are wiggling and maybe even fall you fall over but eventually I think when you find some help that starts to click with you it's like then you get that momentum there's a momentum to spirituality there's a momentum to recovery and there's a momentum to illness yeah And even, I would even
0: say, like, you even said, like, when you find, when you find some recovery, some, some, something that helps. Like, I would even say this doctor, I was, I was very much of the opinion this doctor was not really, we didn't click. He was very by the book. I would say things that meant a lot to me. And I could tell he was kind of, like, maybe not the most experienced and kind of going down a checklist that he was taught in medical school. And I felt that. And I didn't like the hour and I didn't think I got much out of it, but I got so much out of walking through the door. That's great. You know what I mean? Even though the treatment itself was not the perfect fit. And you then, weren't you weren't feeling felt. I was yeah. not feeling felt, but I the act of the fact that every Thursday I drove and parked my car in the parking lot and went through the doors to this place that was an unpleasant place for me. And I did that as a weekly ritual that was about me recognizing things and not hiding things that was the most liberating
1: you know feeling like you're like you're finally facing in the right direction sometimes is even enough even if you feel like you're not moving forward at least you're not moving backwards exactly exactly it was that feeling it's so it's like so sad to say but it's like all right I'm
0: treading water here like you know what I mean I'm Like, all right all right <laughs> I am 100% treading water I'm not at a deficit anymore okay this doesn't feel positive but it doesn't feel negative I'm in a weird emotionless middle ground all right
1: <laughs> finally limbo sweet sweet yeah. limbo
0: oh, f- fucking A purgatory man like it had that feeling too but it did feel great and then went on medication through the clinic he was a part of and then had a really bad, nasty incident where in 2004, I moved out here. I moved to L.A. I, was, I got a job. It's the first job I ever had in comedy. I was a writer's assistant on a show, Comedy Central, and I was so psyched. I'd been taking my pills. I had side effects. That, uh, they were rough. I didn't care was happy. I was confident and my side effects were f- nuts. What were the pills and what were the side effects? Was on Dep- that was when I was on Depakote, Wellbutrin and Risperdal. And you've been diagnosed with any disorder? They I've been over the years I've been diagnosed as bipolar. I've been told I'm dysthymic. I'm kind of at a point, I don't know how you feel about this. I'm kind of at a point where I'm like I don't need a name. No, I'm the same. I get really sad and really angry sometimes, and sometimes I get really fucking like energetic and manic. I don't care what it's called. I just want to fix it. I just want to go talk to somebody and take pills and come up with an individual plan. I don't care what the name is. I think it's been more severe at times
1: than others. I don't know. But I was told it was like bipolar back then. I think it's important as a shorthand when... When discussing it, to be able to say, you know, there are qualities of bipolar, and there's also qualities of, you know, this. Yeah. Um, that I find helpful in discussing it. Um, and I also think that there are diagnoses, uh, is that a right word? Uh, for things that are really dramatic, for instance, borderline personality disorder. I think it's very comforting for um, people who have that in a very stereotypical case to be able to say this is a thing
0: i think so it's an empowering thing yeah and even for me it was when i when i was younger i was very into like what would what do you call this what is it what is it because that would also allow me to research it and allow me to have a word that i could tell people
1: that was not just i go off the fucking rails sometimes you know and 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 sometimes it can help us i think have compassion for ourselves with which is definitely the biggest hump especially in the in the beginning of our recovery. At, yeah. I think even at any point in our recovery, we it, it's so hard to sometimes confuse what are our um, defects of character and where is it something that we're powerless over because it's chemical. Yeah, I think it's
0: totally true. I think it's totally true. But go ahead. So I moved out here. The job was supposed to go three months. I went and saw my doctors. I told them they were excited for me. They prescribed me three, worth, three months worth of medication for while I was out here. While I was out here, the job got extended for a fourth month. I called them, they didn't call me back. Called them, explained the whole situation. I need to get more of my medication because I'm gonna be out here a month longer than I thought. And they didn't call me back. That is unconscionable. Absolutely unforgivable. Unconscionable. And I finally got on the phone with my psychiatrist. This was not my therapist, it was my psychiatrist. And he he and I had a relationship. I would talk to the therapist, but the psychiatrist, I would go, he'd prescribe, he'd talk to me for five minutes, prescribed the pills, and trust that the talk therapy was doing its job and he finally got on the phone with me and he uh, he was like so explain the situation to me again and I did and he's like I'm not going to prescribe you pills without seeing you and I was like I'm in California I told you I was coming to California for this job this and that and he's like well you 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 need to you need to come see me and I'm like I cannot come I can't you're in New Jersey And he's like then you need to see someone out there like I don't know what to tell you and he was nasty about it he was not kind about it and it was I did I fa- managed to find someone out here who immediately was like, that guy sounds like a dickhead. And he prescribed me what I needed. And sadly, when I got back to New Jersey, I went back to their office and I said, wean me off this shit. Cause you put me in a position where I almost had to go cold turkey off three medications as a 24 year old kid Three thousand miles away, I'd with never, almost no money, and I mean, yeah, and I, uh, yeah, uh, uh, exactly. I got no support system here. I grew, I mean, I grew up to New, in New Jersey, went to Rutgers, and lived at home, then lived at the town away from my parents until I went to California. I'm like. You just were were okay with me going off medications cold turkey 3,000 miles away from anyone I would trust to talk about this with. It's not fucking cool. Get me off the pills. And I really reacted so poorly. And I think justifiably so. That was bad doctoring. Made me feel like I cannot be dependent on something that could just go away like that. Because going cold turkey, I immediately, once I realized that could happen, I remember going on the internet and saying like, What happens if you go off Risperdal cold turkey? There's all this shit that came up like, oh, there's people who have murdered. Like that was their murder defense was they ran out of Risperdal and they killed So I'm like, oh my God. So I went off the pills and I did feel better uh, than I had as a young man. And the mood swings would come back and kind of the pendulum would swing, but I was more in control of it. And then that was from 2004 to 2007. Then 2007... Hit the hit had like a four-day crying jag I, it was it's such a cliche comedian thing especially for a new york comedian but that year i got hired to guest write at snl which means i went in for two weeks and i was writing there and before that i'd been teaching improv classes at ucb auditioning for commercials very happy life but i went into snl and i had a sketch make it onto dress rehearsal and i was like oh my god i could do this like i've been underestimating myself i could do this And then later that summer I gave them a packet to try to get hired as a writer and I didn't get hired and I had this moment of like oh my god I blew my only chance that was my in and it just all came back all the panic all the mania all the paranoia and I mean I hit a wall hard harder than I had in five years and I wound up just crying for four days my roommate started sitting up and he was like hey man sleep on the couch and he would just sit in the room with me until i fell asleep and then he would go to sleep wow because he didn't want me being up by myself what a beautiful gesture yeah and he actually i give him so much credit i went to college with him he's one of my best friends ever to this day and when we were real young i tried to talk to him about it and he was like i don't know i don't know what to tell you and i always that always hurt me but then years later he came back and did that when he'd come to kind of understand me and it a little bit more and i always there was always it was such a good turnaround it was, it was such a good turnaround on his part too and Um, then I got back wound up a friend of mine his dad worked at a mental hospital in Trenton New Jersey and I I couldn't find any doctors I didn't have insurance at the time I don't think I couldn't find any doctors in my area who were reasonable I live in New York you can imagine and I called my friend's dad and I talked to him for about five minutes and he was like well look um," he's like just just in talking to you he's like you need to be on medication you you need you need something to stabilize you so how about this you make some calls today if you can't find anybody you come down to trenton and i'll get one of the doctors in the hospital to give you some medication i was like all right all right all right and i called around called a friend of mine who's a doctor who's like like an emergency room physician and i said do you know anybody and he had this number for this nurse practitioner and i've been seeing her ever since since 2007 and we have a really non-traditional but great
1: relationship and you guys live together you and the nurse yeah. practitioner yeah, yeah.
0: Her, she got a ride home from my parents and then mm-hmm. we all moved in together it's like a commune they it's all, all raised me they raised me as a marriage. baby now yeah yeah i'm their 34 year old baby and then yeah that felt really good she really helped me dig out of the hole. i think 2007 was the first time that i for real went on the medication and had treatment that i felt like was really helping where i was on the same wavelength with someone and even though she maybe is a little inappropriate with some of her behavior, it also means she's very, very hands-on and involved and caring in a way that's also maybe inappropriate, but that works for me better
1: than a medical school exercise or something that feels like that. What, what's some of the stuff that's come up in talk therapy for you? Any epiphanies or breakthroughs? Yeah, a couple huge
0: ones that she really helped walk me up to. One, one of the first things she
1: said, she was like, so she's the only person you see, and she does chalk therapy as yeah, well as prescribing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. We meet once
0: okay. once a week for about four years, and now once every two weeks. And she, uh, one of the early things she said to me, which sounds so simple, but when you don't really know what's going... When you've never been able to nail down what your deal is, and someone can sum it up in a sentence... Even when it's so simple and maybe obvious, it felt so liberating. She goes, you know, we'd been meeting for maybe six months and she was like, she'd helped me a lot already, gotten me on medication, really started helping me sort out a lot of the bullying stuff and a lot of the confidence stuff and all these things. And uh, she goes, you know what our umbrella is? Here's the umbrella we work under, me and you. She goes, your reactions to things are not proportional to what the things are. She's like, that's the basic thing with you. And I was like, holy shit, that's it. Someone just told me in a sentence what I've felt my whole life that I can't deal with because it's a maelstrom for me. Like very small things will make me cry for two days straight. And then something huge and positive will happen and it'll, it'll just, you'll feel numb. I'll feel nothing. And people will look at me like, wait, what? Like, this great thing, you know what I mean? This great, this very nice, good thing just happened to you. And I'd be like, yeah, it's cool. And then somebody would be like, ah, oh, we ran out of Captain Crunch. And I'd be like, why? <laughs> no, why? I organized my life a certain fucking way. You know, like just flip out on my roommates or whatever. And she just said it like that. Your reactions to things are not proportional to the things. And it was this, I was like, fuck yeah. That's great. That's awesome. And then what are the other things? Another very simple thing. So
1: that, that helped you from then on and that you could go, oh, this is that thing happening that with me. Exactly.
0: It made me think, that's that. And it, it it gave me this mental, it gave me this extra step in my reaction where I could take a breath. Where, where yeah, where like I'd go, you know, like I'd go to a store and try to order something and the person would snap at me. And before I went into like a rage, I could take a step and say, it doesn't need to be a rage. It's a frustration. Like, they're having a bad day.
1: I, I honestly like, think 90% of society's ills could be cured if we could organically and truthfully take a deep breath. Yeah. And allow the truth to come in instead yeah. of feeling that feeling in our body and thinking that's reality.
0: Yeah. she. It was so huge for me. And then the other great thing she gave me, because so much... I think as many creative people do so much of my self-worth is determined by success but then as you know and I'm short from talking to everybody I feel like so many of us realize like you chase these goals and then you get the goals and they don't fill what you thought they were gonna (laughs) fill and then you chase the next thing and it becomes like you're running up like you know you're like quicksand like you're just always Mm -hmm. chasing it and she uh she said to me this was i was like doing some freelance work for magazines i was teaching improv classes going on some commercial auditions but i really i wanted to be a writer i wanted to be an actor i wanted to be a comedian and i wasn't doing those things fully i was dipping my toe in some corners of those worlds and it was killing me i was like i think i can make it i think i'm as talented as a lot of the people around me who have made it and it's hard to understand why i haven't and she was like i've been thinking a lot about this and she's like Give yourself no other option. And I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, you don't want to be teaching classes or doing freelance magazine work? Stop today. You're done with it. And I was like, no, you're crazy. And we have a relationship where I can tell her Mm -hmm. what you're saying makes no sense. She'll tell me stuff like, she'll be like, like like, with my public access show, we've been trying to sell it forever. I'm like, none of the networks want to buy it. And she's like, okay, well, you'll start your own network. And I'm like, you can't, you don't just start your own television network. She'll be like, why not? I'll be like, because you need to be like a conglomerate. You need to have billions of dollars. Like, what do you, no, that doesn't, what you're saying, like, I'll just yell at her and be like, that doesn't, what you're saying, it's not a thing you can even, it's not reality. Let's move on, you know, like, we have this back and forth. But I was like, what are you talking about? Quit my jobs. That's how I pay my rent. I pay my rent through magazine work and teaching. And she's like, well, look, you're worried about if you can do it, but then you're not, putting yourself in a position where you're doing it. So she's like, here's what's going to happen. You have some savings, no other option. You only make money by stuff that you're really proud of, that you're really into acting gigs. You want writing jobs. You want you go all in, you don't teach any more classes. You don't do any more freelance magazine stuff. None of this stuff where you're kind of like flitting around the edge of this world you want to be in. And I was like, it's really scary. That sounds scary. She's like, but it's totally she's it's totally scary, but one of two things happens: one, you go do it, and you feel really proud that you did it, and you stop worrying two you don't do it, and you realize you don't have what it takes, which'll be hard, but then you can just fucking move on, and you won't be sitting on the fence wondering if you can or not. You'll know you either can do it or you can't, and I spent the next year living off savings picking up like small gigs and I'll never forget. I hit a point where I had like set aside a couple thousand bucks. That was like, this is the emergency. This is the end of the line cash where if, if I'm dipping into this, this is when I have to realize I didn't make it. And I had that in a savings account. And then my checking account for the only time in my adult life, my checking account, had less money than my rent so if my rent was due the next day i didn't have it for the first time in my adult life i did not have my rent covered and i was crying and uh remember talking to my girlfriend at the time being like "Fuck, i'm done like the experiment she's right like there's some freedom in this but i didn't make it and then i think that was on a monday and that friday i booked my first part ever in a movie which paid my rent for the next three or four months. And then by the end of that year, I did well on the movie. And the producers of that movie put me as the lead in a sitcom. And then from there, I had a nest egg that I still, I mean, I, I learned so well from that, like, put that money away. Don't waste it. And I realized, like, it was almost exactly a year to the day that she told me to do that. And it worked. And I was like, holy shit, I love this woman, you know? love it and then things have been very much on an upswing since then since like 2007 2008 2009 and 2012 was my last one and it was bad but it's good I feel like I used to be very very consistently depressed and would have these like episodes that would run a long time or really and then the consistency of that has slowed
1: down even though every couple years I still have a thing that's pretty rough um, is it mostly depression-based or paranoia-based or both? I think it's more depression, and a lot of it
0: now is panic. Like it hits in a way, I, I'm experienced with it enough now where it'll I'll feel it hit, I'll feel the depression or the panic or the paranoia start to hit, and I'll just be like, oh, fuck, and I'll just know like, I'm about to have, maybe it'll be, half an hour maybe it'll be a couple days
1: but here we go i always feel like somebody who answers the door and it's like oh my stalker's back it found my new address yeah i thought i'd shaken it but to
0: me i wonder if you
1: feel this way too it's
0: almost now at a point where i'm like it's almost like catching a cold where i'm like oh yeah like here comes that sinus thing this is gonna be nasty for a few days like it's almost like not in severity i am aware that it's much more Dangerous and nasty than that,
1: but it has that vibe to me where I'm like, oh, okay, push through this. Just like I, I look at it that way to help me have compassion for myself and take naps if I need them. To you know, play a video game maybe more than is uh, ideal uh, because it's that's what you would do if you had the flu. Exactly, you would sit in bed. You'd read a book. You'd you play a video game. My heart goes out to people that don't have the time to do yeah. that, that have to work 60 hours a week and have kids and, you know, commitments. Yeah. Uh, and to them, I would encourage them to really look hard at what you can cut back on. Yeah. Obviously, there's things that you can't, that you're obligated to do, but look at the things that that, that can be scaled back and where you can Because that was me.
0: I realized, like, there was all these shows I quit doing. I stopped scaled back work hours, it was like, oh, I've been doing this to hide from this. I keep myself insanely busy not to accomplish things so much as to have places to hide. So scaling back,
1: I think, is extraordinary advice. What are some of the thoughts about yourself that you think you run from by distracting yourself with staying busy? That's a great question, isn't it? Or maybe we'll get, did you write any fears down?
0: I have I've thought I I've not physically written them but I've okay. thought of them.
1: Well let's maybe let's go through some yeah. of those now.
0: I have let's see one of my big fears is I hate to say it cuz it, it it'll you can already see it freaking me out a little bit. I have a massive hang up on the idea that my mom has to die someday, which is weird both my parents are still alive. my mom in particular I'm I don't know why. I just have this massive. I have a crippling. When that mm. thought crosses my brain, it stops me in my tracks.
1: Mine is that my mom won't die someday. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> There's a sliver of truth in there. Yeah. There's a sliver of truth. Yeah. Yeah. That one shuts
0: me down real mm-hmm. bad. Um, what else? Like I have, I have, I have some standard fears, but it's interesting because they come and go. Like I have, like, like. Um, I I just got married about six weeks ago. Congratulations. Thanks. We were on our honeymoon. My wife is like so adventurous. Anything she wants to do, like we're doing all this stuff. And there's one thing where we went off-roading to this beach and then you have to go down this cliff face. Wow. And it was like... I guess a fear of heights, but the thing is like we'd done, we like the day before we'd done a zip lining tour and I was fine with that. And then we get to the top of this cliff and I'm like shaking and she's like, what's wrong? I'm like, I can't do it heights. And she's like, yesterday we were zip lining in a rainforest canopy. And I'm like, yesterday I wasn't scared of heights. Were you in Costa Rica? Today I'm scared of heights. No, Hawaii, the big Island. It was an awesome trip, but I have that sometimes I have standard fears, but not every day. I have a real, let's see. I really have a fear of, um, swimming in any place where animals are especially in the dark i have the paranoia comes back huge what else i was always such a fearful person to say those last couple of ones just sound like common sense to yeah me. i mean they are they are big time <laughs> the one about my mom is big and then i don't know like try to think of, like what the other specific ones are i think one of the happy things about myself is i've trained myself i think to be a little fearless Um, because I grew up so terrified all the, all the time.
1: Um, it's almost like you, um, where there, there's this therapy called immersion therapy where you slowly, um, confront the fear that you have in little tiny baby steps.
0: Well, I'll tell you this. Like I, when I grew up, any horror movie, I'd be up shaking anything. Like kids in my neighborhood used to torment me being like, you know, just like from when I was young, oh, there's a witch here, like mm-hmm. this or that, or there's a story about this haunted house a few blocks away, we should go see it. I mean, I'd be quaking with fear. And then when I was in college, I got a job at a magazine that was all about haunted places in New Jersey, and we'd drive and like go into abandoned mental hospitals and take pictures, and we'd go to like this tree where they used to hang people. And if you touch it, you die. And we'd take like a picture of me touching it. And then the article
1: would be about if I died or not, you know, like, so I've I've always been proud of that. Like, have you seen that documentary on the place, the abandoned metal hospital in Staten Island? Oh, the uh scene? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah.
0: Great. It made me think of that. Yeah. yeah. So that, that there was a weird thing with that where When I was a kid, I was so scared of that stuff. And then my job forced me to do it. And ever since then, I think I've been very good about if I'm truly scared of something, I try to dive into it and see if I can just
1: take it on head on. I heard somebody say one time, fear is a mile high, a mile wide and paper thin. Yeah, that's awesome. Sometimes I picture that if I have an intense fear about something, I picture it as that. Paper circle that football teams run through when they come out of the tunnel. Yeah, try to remember. Yeah, it's it's not a brick wall. Yeah, I get that. So yeah, probably the one about my mom dying is
0: the the big one. That's the most OCD. Like, if I'm in the shower and I start talking about that, all of a sudden I'll realize I've been in the shower for two and a half hours. What? Thinking about that. Like that happened to me. That's not an exaggeration. That's to, a, to, like that won't happen anymore. But that happened to me in the period I described where I was in between mm, therapists, where yeah. there was one time where that idea came up. I was in the shower, thought to myself, "Someday my mom's gonna die, and that's gonna be really sad." And then I just thought about that and kind of like froze up. I was in the shower for yeah, probably like like ninety ninety minutes or so, and got out and hadn't even realized it. Where I was just like standing in there, dwelling on that. That's like that's the big one and then what else i don't know i don't know your standard things give me some loves loves i love like when i love something i try to love it all in i love soda love soda i love specifically glass bottles, small regional brand sodas, especially if they're the ones who have been around for decades and decades, like Moxie, and L-8-1. I'm obsessive about my soda. How about there's some crushed ice in there? you like that? No, I go right from the bottle. Right from the bottle. I don't want to bottom. water it down. I don't want to water it down. I'll put yeah. the bottle in some ice to get it as cold as
1: possible, yeah. but I think it dilutes the soda. Uh, like my, One of my favorites, and I never drink it because there's so much sugar in it, is uh, Coke from a bottle. Yeah, uh, with crushed ice. That, yeah, that with pizza, it, it doesn't get any. Do you, you get the Mexican Coke? Um, you can get them here in L. A. Yeah, they, it's made with sh- sugar, sugar and
0: corn syrup. Yeah, I don't like the corn syrup. There's a store in L. A. My favorite thing about L. A. is uh is that there's this store called Galco's. It's a supermarket in Highland Park, and they have it's a whole supermarket just full of soda. It's heaven. It's my heaven. I, I love it, love it. Any anytime I'm in an area, I'm like oh. Like I'm doing a show in, I'm doing a show in Wisconsin. I got to try to get Spreckers. Like I know what the
1: sodas are. I try to track them down. I'm a big nerd about soda. I love it. it. I used to love the uh, glass bottle soda machines. This would have been in the '70s where um you reach in and you pull each one had like its own hole it was like a little glass door that would open up yeah and then you would reach in and you would grab the bottom of the bottle of it and you would pull it through and fanta sodas had this um uh, like this rough almost like diamond shape um texture on the outside and i just love that feeling when you would grab that bottle and you yeah. could feel that rough texture and you would just pull it out and it it just made the soda look different. It was like this almost like this prism that you would you would see the soda through. And yeah. oh yeah, I used to love that. There's one. one there's one called
0: Dublin Dr. Pepper, which is it was Dr. Pepper, one of the original Dr. Pepper bottling plants was in Dublin, Texas and there used to be you know territories this bottling plant has this radius and this bottling plant has this radius and when all the soda companies teamed up and said let's go to corn syrup instead of sugar dublin texas was like you know what we're going to stick with the original formula so they did that and uh for years i mean for 30 years people would drive to dublin get the old school this is what it used to taste like when we were kids dr pepper then mexican coke started people started liking the sugar companies started doing like they'll do throwback mountain dew where it's real sugar instead of the corn syrup and people go nuts and then dr pepper did it in big sales and they realized oh we have this one bottling company doing this we're competing with them so they told them shut it down and they wound up suing them there was a federal court case called dr pepper versus dr pepper (laughs) and obviously the big corporate guys won they had to stop making the original formula dr pepper but you can still occasionally find a bottle of it. You can still yeah. find like stores in the middle of nowhere that are still selling like their old stock of it. Cause they haven't run out. They probably shut down two or three years ago. So that's a soda that I'm like, every time I find it, I'm like, Oh my God. Like the Holy grail. Yeah. Like it's this weird thing where I'm like, there's this story that's like insanely American corporation beat the little guy. And I'm like holding the little guy. And once I drink this, this is like, I think the bottles are six ounces, seven ounces, like this is six ounces less of this stuff and it'll never exist again. Like that's the type of stuff I get nerdy about. I'm like, I love soda so much. And then you look up and you realize you've been in the store for two and a half hours. Oh dude, when I go to Galco's, I set aside the whole day, (laughs) two hours is not enough.
1: Does it, does the, do you drink huge amounts of sugar? And does that ever
0: affect your mood? My diet is insane. I have the diet of a small child. I quit drinking when I was in college. Because that was a whole... That's the smartest thing I ever did. Did you do it on your own or did you get help? On my own. Yeah. Tried a couple times and then it finally stuck. Pretty much cold turkey. I'm very proud of that because that was the whole college. I think it's a big part of why it got so out of control with the paranoia and stuff because I was just pounding alcohol to try to... My shrink, it was funny. She was like... When we started, she's like, so well, you don't drink? I'm like, yeah. She's like, are you an alcoholic? I'm like, nah. It's like I never drank every day, but like... When I was in school, I'd probably drink like three times a week. And like the issue wasn't that I drank all the time. It was that like when I drank, I'd always, I'd always, like I I could, I would black out. I'd say I was going to have two drinks and then I'd drink until I blacked out or got in a fist mm-hmm. fight or something. She'd be like, yeah, that's, that's an, al- that's an alcoholic. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Then I'm, yeah, add that to the list. I'm an alcoholic then. Like, <laughs> oh, okay. So. I didn't even realize that it was like I knew I knew I couldn't do it, and I and luckily that's one thing that I had seen enough in my family and knew enough about my family's history that I was like, I am cut from the cloth of a lot of people I've heard about. Mm-hmm. I better cut this shit out, and it was. I
1: mean, bad. it's it's like uh, a, a comet. The person, in my opinion, who is an alcoholic who can stop drinking on their own. Yeah, it's. It was pretty i'm pretty surprised
0: i was able to do it because i have a pretty addictive personality as you can tell from my rambling about soda it has basically (laughs) replaced alcohol in my life Mm -hmm. um which is a safer thing so i have to watch out for that because i eat like a maniac but i'm like but i don't drink so that's okay and it's like yeah no it's probably not how do you stay thin Through nervous, a nervous man's metabolism through shaking, just through constant shaking and a bad stomach because I'm nervous all the time. So, I uh, I I spend about. I spend way too much time sitting on the toilet, nervous about things compared to most people. I think so that'll help the anxiety. The anxiety shits. The I have to run to the bathroom because I have so much anxiety about stuff. That that's my diet plan. <laughs>
1: Give me a couple more loves, and then we'll we'll wrap up. Unless we skipped anything that you feel like is uh, seminal. Mm, I
0: mean not really. i had one other thing in 2012 where i also convinced myself i was a ghost that seems to be a thing when i have my real bad <laughs> incidents two different times of my life i have convinced myself i was dead in a ghost because i had that was the other big one i had a bad one in 2012 on stage at ucb and just walked off stage got in my car wound up in weehawken in new jersey just sitting on a bench crying for hours and these two couples i'll never forget it's like real good view of the New York City skyline up there on the cliffs and these two couples came and sat down on the bench with me and we're just talking to each other and I was sitting there sobbing and I was like they can't even see me I must be dead I must be a ghost and spent a whole night were they on either side of you? They were they were surrounding me it was so bizarre none of them were like what's wrong and I, I was in such a bad spot I was like
1: oh was it obvious you were crying? 100% 100% I was sitting with my head in my hand just <laughs> sobbing that is we have a word for that on the podcast awfulsome yeah awesome and awful at the yeah. same time but yeah. this story this will actually tell
0: you why i love my shrink so much here's why she's great for me because this went on for hours where i was sitting there didn't know what to do started thinking about getting a hotel room but was smart enough to know like nothing good happens when you rent a hotel room and don't tell anyone about it while you're having a panic attack like that's not that never has ended well i was like maybe i should go get a drink and i'm like i haven't had a drink at that point in 10 years what am i talking about Am I a fucking ghost? Am I dead already? And I tried calling a friend of mine who lived nearby. He wasn't home. Called my shrink. She picked up middle of the night, Sunday night. She's like, what's up? She's like, you never call me off hours. And I was like, uh, I'm having a fucking episode. I'm sitting on a bench in and I think I've been telling myself I'm a ghost and that no one can see me. She's like, that's crazy. That's crazy. She's like, you thinking anything suicidal? I was like, yeah. I was thinking about jumping off the cliff up here. Like, I don't know. I'm not, I don't think I'm going to do it. But yeah, it crossed my mind. And she's like, you feel better or worse than you did a couple hours ago? I was like, better, better. And she's like, it's a good sign you called me. I'm like, yeah, no, it's good. That's good. She's like, you sound pretty calm. I'm like, yeah. And she just like paused and she goes, all right, we'll talk about it on Thursday. And that was to me. Probably not the most traditional thing, probably not the medically uh, textbook thing, but so just the idea that I have this drink who's like, it's fine. Yeah, that's fine. We'll talk We'll talk about it on Thursday. Well, it, it sounds to me like
1: she knows you and she knows your patterns. She knows me really well. It's like she knows that pattern that she told you about that you, like she was shining the flashlight and yeah. saying, here's you adding weight uh, to something, yes. thinking something is bigger. Than than it is, but I would imagine that boy. That sounds really close to the line of, yeah. of something that's like uh, I'm going to call the you know nine one one. Yeah, and have them come get you. It's
0: pretty crazy, but she's good like that. And it also is like such this. I just started laughing on the phone with her because I'm like right, like yeah. I just said it's Sunday. Like I'll just make. I just have to make it till Thursday. And when you mm-hmm. put it like that. It doesn't sound so hard.
1: Yeah. I'll go out to get something to eat with these two couples. <laughs> yeah. I'll sit in between
0: them.
1: <laughs> oh, no one will ever talk to me. See if they have Dublin Dr. Pepper. And we'll, yeah. We'll call it a night. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's uh, the last thing. And then I, yeah. Well, that's I think that's a good, that's a good place for us to, to wrap up. Yeah. Um, just on a Dublin nice, awful, nice, awful, moment. Yeah. Um, well, Chris, thank you uh, so much. Thank you. For I'm coming. glad it
0: finally worked out. It means yeah. so much, and I think you do such a great thing. And I've been an admirer for a long time, and and I know it's not. I also feel like I know it's not easy for you to put yourself out there in this position as you do. So I think it's a real kind and noble thing you do. Uh, well,
1: I appreciate that, but it doesn't. It doesn't feel that way to me. It feels. Um, it, I I feel felt doing the show. So um, it's. It's not as altruistic as you think it is. Um, and that's not me deflecting a comment. Thank you. No, for, please. For, for that nice thing. But I know that you, I know that.
0: I just hope it gives me a sense of community. It feels important okay. to me to make sure I say that. That I know um, I appreciate that. It is, it is a It is a kindness for you to do this. And I yeah. would imagine it's not, especially to start something like this, it's not yeah. easy. So I feel like it's such a great thing you provide. It's
1: awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, people can go to um, the website, thechrisgethershow.com yeah, the I don't who cares about that though. That's fine. I think they're going to want to see more, <laughs> more of you. I think. Yeah. I think That's your cool. your your conversation uh, touched, will touch uh, a lot of I people, hope so. and I think they're going to want to see you. Hope so. uh, perform.
0: Yeah, and I like a lot of my fans are people who say that they maybe deal with some
1: stuff, and I'm glad that yeah. I can help make them laugh a little bit. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you many many thanks to uh chris what a what a great guy and uh just so open and vulnerable you know that's one of the things i love about doing this show is i get to meet so many interesting nice people and i get to see them at their at their best some people would say oh at their worst because you know they're sad or they're um you know experiencing something that's traumatic but to me it's it's like when somebody just opens up and uh Let you in it's uh, i say it before i'll say it again i have a front row seat for the best job in the world um i did find out the dates for the dubuque wine festival it is uh, november 7th and 8th so if you're going to be near the quad cities area come on down and uh say hi eat some some good food drink some wine watch me stare at the wine and jealously watch you drink it actually I, i don't really I don't really think about getting loaded uh, anymore. Um I miss the taste of wine and beer, but I don't miss all the all the bullshit that comes with uh being an alcoholic. Um This is, before we get to the, to the surveys, uh, I want to remind you there's a couple of different ways to support the podcast if you feel so inclined. The website for this show is uh, mentalpod.com. Go there and you can uh, support us financially by making a one-time PayPal donation or my favorite, becoming a monthly subscriber slash donor, whatever you want to call it. Um, I guess it wouldn't be considered a subscriber because you're not, you're not getting anything. there are no episodes maybe i should do that maybe i should make some special episodes for just for monthly donors but then i feel like i want if i make an episode i want everybody to be able to hear it because i worry sometimes if i did that what if what if somebody's a listener who doesn't have any money and that's the issue that is the most important to them so god bless you uh monthly donors i guess that's a, a roundabout way of saying that the fact that you support me month after month um and you don't have to um that you're not getting anything more out of it than somebody who doesn't donate. Uh it means it means so much to me and it it helps keep the show going because honestly this is the only thing I'm doing um unless you count oversleeping. <laughs> I tweeted a joke today that my halloween costume is uh a man who uh gets out of bed at a reasonable hour. <laughs> let 's get to the surveys, or am I not done quoting myself? <laughs> maybe i Maybe I need to invite some people and get a microphone and just start quoting myself. Oh, how annoying is that um, this is this is from the body shame survey, and this is filled out by a transgendered male uh, who calls himself Maxter. And uh, he says, I'm a transgender man. I was born female and have been transitioning for almost three years. And although I take testosterone, I have not been able to afford to have my breasts removed. I am not as dysphoric as some pre op trans people, but I hate my breasts. They're very large and difficult to conceal. I hate that I have to slouch to hide them. I want to be able to stand up straight and put my shoulders back and face the world that way. My breasts are so large that on more than one occasion, my girlfriend, has accidentally propped herself up on her elbow on one of them while we're lying in bed not realizing my breast could be that far over to the side and big. I know that she loves me for me regardless of my huge breasts, but it's humiliating. I do, however, like several things about my body, all of them resulting from taking testosterone. I like that I'm hairier than a lot of cis guys. Cis means people whose gender fits, Um, you know, neatly into a box, uh, male or female, um, or feminine or masculine. Um, I like how powerful my body has become, even though I don't work out. I've, uh, I like feeling the deepness of my voice vibrating through my back. That's beautiful. That has got to feel so comforting to finally feel like um, your outside is beginning to match your inside. So um, high five. This next one is a and Secret Survey, this is filled out by Cass, and uh, she is bisexual in her 30s, uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, she doesn't elaborate. Uh, she's been emotionally abused, and she shares, my mother had anger problems when I was younger. The smallest, most insignificant things made her fly into a rage at me. I remember very clearly being eight or nine, getting ready for bed, standing in my room, wearing a too-big-for-me t-shirt as my nightgown, and her yelling at me so badly, so frighteningly, I peed my pants right there in front of her. Needless to say, that didn't calm her anger any. I remember another time, maybe when I was 12, When she was pissed off that I flushed the toilet in one bathroom while she was taking a shower in the other, she came flying out of the bathroom with just a towel on, pushed me by my neck up against the front door of our apartment and lifted me off the ground and yelled at me to never do that again. All through middle and high school, I got horrible grades and her verbal abuse got so much worse during that time. Any positive experiences with uh, your abuser? In the last 10-ish years, I've gotten pseudo-close with my mom. I used to spend time with her, my dad, and my little brother all the time. I had my moments of anger towards her, and she had occasional moments of her old anger and rage, but I've never been allowed to step away from her or the family. We're, quote, close, according to her. She tells people I'm her best friend. The mother part of her only occasionally comes out. Uh, But now that I'm married and don't need her in the same way as I used to, she's back to being a mother and I'm on the verge of disowning her for the games she plays. Uh, darkest thoughts. I want her to die. I want her to just go away. At the same time, I have those two thoughts. I feel horrible and hate myself because that's my mom and you're not supposed to feel those things about your mom. You're supposed to be respectful and giving and supportive of your mom. You're supposed to be grateful for all she's done for you, but she fucking killed my childhood. She killed her daughter a long time ago. The adult me cannot and will not ever get over that. Um. God, you know, I I want to give you a hug because that is the war that so many fucking people fight in their head is they just don't like their fucking parent. And you know what? You say it, you're supposed to love. You're supposed to be respectful. You're supposed to... Well, your mom was supposed to do a lot of things too and she didn't. And the way you feel about them, I think, is completely normal. And... Uh, My suggestion would be um, if you're not comfortable cutting her out of your life, set some boundaries. See how she respects those. And if she doesn't, then you gave her a chance to see you and to treat you with respect. Because if your parent is going to respect you, fuck being respectful to them. Cut them out of your life. Done. Darkest secrets. uh, That's for another survey at another time. Um. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you, being pushed up against a wall, being taken hard and rough without permission. Uh, Have you shared uh, any of these things with others? By the way, that question means any of this stuff on the survey, just because it follows the uh, sexual fantasies one, it doesn't necessarily mean that. Uh, She writes, my husband, he has been the most supportive person I've ever had in my life. I recently told my dad about what I see as abuse I experienced at the hands and voice of my mother. He obviously has dealt with her anger since day one, but never stepped in. Uh, to my aid or defense when the abuse was happening, so I figured he'd deny that it ever happened. He didn't, though, and for that I am grateful. And I wouldn't be surprised, too, if there's some anger in there buried at your dad because he didn't protect you, and uh, that's fucked up. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Brody. Brody. And she writes, I had a healthy relationship with my father and didn't otherwise have any negative or abusive relationships with men in my youth. That being said, at the age of 23, I entered into a relationship and shared a home with a true sociopath. Not only did he slowly reveal his physically and emotionally abusive side, he also had a fetish, which I found disgusting. He loved smelling my dirty feet. I was repulsed, but went along with it as I was... uh as I was abused otherwise. I wonder if she meant as I was not abused otherwise. Um, Actually, now that I think of it, yes, she had meant to put um, not. Actually, now that I think of it, I was abused whether or not I, quote, deserved it. Neither my family nor my friends knew what was going on. I was enduring all of this alone, isolated. As the abuses grew in intensity and frequency, I felt myself becoming a sort of caged animal. By the way, Uh, One of the things that sociopaths do and abusers do in uh, relationships is one of the first things they do is they begin to isolate you from your friends and family. If you're in a relationship and that person is becoming really possessive about your time with them, buy track shoes and fucking run. Um... Uh, I felt myself becoming a sort of a caged animal. I felt like I was being pushed into a corner and was going to die. I hadn't considered that the other option was to strike back. Up until that point, I played perfectly the role of the victim, giving my sociopath power over me. I hadn't physically fought back or protected myself. Instead, I tried to, quote, fix whatever the non-existent problems were that had started the abuse in the first place. Over the course of two years, I became completely worn down and suicidal, feeling helpless. I was at my end. One night after being beaten, by the way, this, this, some of these awful, awfulsome moments uh, aren't necessarily hilarious, uh, as you can see from this one, but uh, stop fucking explaining and qualifying, Paul. Just read the goddamn thing. I'm so afraid that you guys are going to bail on me. I'm so afraid that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a pattern of something that's annoying. And ironically, probably the biggest pattern I have is fucking apologizing. That's probably the most annoying thing I do. <sighs> I'm just going to take a deep breath. One night after being beaten and held in the apartment against my will, my abuser insisted that I masturbate him while he smelled my feet which was something he normally demanded and received. I snapped. I'm not sure exactly how it happened, but he ended up on the floor with me kicking him repeatedly in the chest and stomach. He was curled up in a ball with his hands over his face and head. For the first time, I was striking back. I remember bending over, looking him dead in the eye with the widest eyes I've ever made, and with the flattest, almost whisper of an intense voice, I uttered, if you ever touch me again in any way, I will stab you. I will stab you. For the first time I saw real fear in his eyes. It was a glorious thing. My possessions were moved out within the week without further incident. Fucking love when I see people take claim their power. Love it. I wanted to read this one uh right after it. Um Oh you'll see why. You'll see why. This is a Shaman's secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Mus Music and uh, oh the, the helicopters coming in, Herbert go find a go find a hiding place. They're after you. Uh, I don't know if you guys can hear that in the background, but there's a yes, there's no way you can't hear that. That's one of the nice things about living in Los Angeles is people are always in trouble. There's, oh, somebody's always running from something. Uh, anyway, his name calls himself Muss Music. Uh, he is straight in his 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um, never been sexually abused, but he has been emotionally abused. And he writes, uh, after a week in the psych ward and the disorder of a substance abuse Substance-induced mood disorder, I decided to get sober with help from support groups. They had put me on Risperidone while in the hospital, which I found odd considering the diagnosis. You'd think stopping the pot and booze would be enough, but I guess they were just playing playing the statistics that I wouldn't stay clean. After a month and a half of being sober, I had a bad reaction to the drug known as akathisia, which is a constant feeling of Uh, restlessness that coupled with trying to stay sober and various other issues brought me to a place of feeling suicidal and desperate I returned to the psyche R where they put me on new meds and sent me on my way the same day I was a crazy person in there punching myself pacing frantically which caused another patient to try to start a fight with me um what did they say I want some of that (laughs) give me some you're hogging your face Let me wail on you, too. Uh, After returning home, I felt this deep, primal urge to see my parents, who had just moved to another state. There was lots of yelling, arguing, confusion, crying. They really didn't get it, but I think I got what I was looking for, a little bit of recognition for being an imperfect human being. The first night there, I let it all out and cried for about 10 minutes. They just sat there like zombies, motionless and emotionless. No words of comfort, no hugging. I told a story of a falling out I had had with a friend that year, to which my dad says, that's where your pain comes from. No, asshole. This is all about you and mom, can't you see? At one point, my mother and I were trying to help my dad share some of his emotions. She asked me, why don't you try to help dad out by sharing some of your emotions? So I dug deep, and out it came. I want to fucking kill you. I want to stab you in the fucking eye, I said, as I hid my face. Their perfect all-American athlete son with a PhD finally dug down deep and shared. The wall was broken down. My dad later reluctantly walked over and gave me a hug at my mother's suggestion, at which point I started convulsing. I was quite confused about this until I recently read about how a reaction like that can be related to abrupt releasing of traumatic energy or something like that. I'll just go with that. Things have been going well since then, about five months, and I've been working hard to piece together my past filled with denial and emotional neglect and move on from the misery I hadn't even realized I was living with. That's one of the reasons why I preached the therapy. Uh, darkest thoughts, stabbing people. I'm going to hook you and the uh, our last uh, person, Brody, up uh, together. And um, I want you guys to to swap stabbing tips. Uh, stabbing people. The thoughts seemingly come out of nowhere. I will be in a seemingly pleasant conversation with someone and I will picture myself stabbing them in the neck. By the way, when my fantasies go dark, I picture myself cutting their heads off. I go to the axe and I fuck around with a knife. I go to right to the axe. I, won't, I don't go chainsaw because I'm not sick, but I go to an axe, a nice sharp axe, and I just think about lopping their head off. Um, darkest Secrets. Uh, when I was 10, I would get my little brother, uh, who was seven, to sit on me, or I would sit on him or lay on him. I guess I was that desperate for human connection, but I didn't know how to get it. I felt tremendously guilty for this year's for this for years and it only recently accepted that I was a kid and that it's best to forgive myself I absolutely agree um, sexual fantasies most powerful to you sex with my co-workers I worry they can notice how often I check out their bodies I start to get a little paranoid that they know uh, what if anything do you wish for serenity if you shared those things with others yes support groups have been a lifesaver and a life-changer um, how do you feel after writing this stuff down glad I can write of these things and still see a bright future free of misery anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences there is no shame in sharing it takes practice but it's worth it oh i just want to drive to wherever you are and give you a hug um you i love when i get recovery and somebody's survey where there's just fucking dark sadness and then you just light was that did herbert just make a noise um, this is an awful moment since, uh, her name, she calls herself since, since I left you. Uh, and she, she has two. And the first one, uh, she writes, I don't remember what year it was, but in 2001, um, I like how she says she doesn't remember what year it was, but in 2001, uh, both of my parents uh, got really hammered. So, my older, mentally challenged brother, uh, he is not too bad. He will just be age 13 forever. Uh, We're playing video games since our older siblings left to go to New Year's parties. My brother went to get something in the kitchen and called me over in horror. My father was buckling his pants because he had just taken a heaping shit on the kitchen floor. My brother ran to go puke, and I was pissed. I didn't say anything out of the little respect I still had for my drunk pops. I cleaned up most of it. My brother came to help after. Not even five minutes later, we heard someone fall in my parents' room. We went to investigate. My mother had taken a piss on the floor, and my dad fell on it. After hastily cleaning it up and getting my mom and dad into pajamas, my brother and I went to our older brother's room, and we just died of laughter. I was just so angry, but the picture of my father pooping was as funny as watching a dog poop. Wow. Wow. Um, that, there, like, isn't a bigger more concrete example of the child doing the parenting than that. I hope you're getting some kind of recovery for that because that is trauma. Um, Her second one, one of the mornings where I took care of my hungover mother, she instructed me how to make her sopa de bolos or de bolos uh, or drunkard soup. It was basically egg drop soup. Uh, I went to make it for her. However, I didn't know that I was supposed to leave the egg in the water and wait a moment until I had to stir it. I stirred it, creating a frothy... Off-white, fart-smelling soup. I brought it to my mom, and as soon as she smelled it, she gagged. I tried my hardest not to laugh because I didn't want her to think I did it on purpose. After puking, she yelled at me a little and re-explained the instructions. My second attempt was a success. I told this story to my therapist the other day, actually, and I laughed as the, as my eyes got full of tears. I should also mention that my mother passed when I was 16. Um then I knew I should email this to you. Although I was very upset with my mom for her alcoholism uh, since it was eventually her demise. I still love her and I just miss her. And then she adds, by the way, Loren's story about losing her father at the same age as me broke my heart and I felt that. For a moment, she and I were sharing our stories as 16-year-old versions, uh, versions, not to be confused with virgins, 16-year-old versions of ourselves. We both had sick parents and for that her story stuck with me. Yeah, Lorenz. If you haven't listened to the uh, uh, Loren uh, Sala episode, it's it's worth every minute of the of the two hours. This is a shame and circuit. What is my fucking problem? You know, I spent about a solid hour before I started recording. Fucking around with the audio equipment. I, I think I shared with you guys on a previous episode that I, I switched my audio equipment. I finally upgraded it after 10 years. And uh, I've just been having all kinds of glitches. And I think I finally got it dialed in, but uh, it was about an hour of sweating and, you know, trying to read the back of gears, which were you know, with no light. And. Uh, My brain is just a little, uh, as my dad used to say, my my brain went to screensaver. Um, So this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Kaboom. She is in her 20s. Uh, She identifies as asexual. Uh, She says, I'm asexual, but I'm very romantic. I can strike up romantic feelings for just about anyone, regardless of gender. Um, I'm so glad for those of you... um, who are asexual for writing to me and sharing um your inner life uh, and your outer life uh with us because i i had no idea what it what it is and still don't really fully understand what it's like uh, to be you and i just want to thank you for for sharing that um anyway continuing uh She's never been sexually abused. Uh, she has been emotionally abused, and she writes, "I was severely bullied from the age of four until around the age of seventeen. I believe it seriously impacted my life and my relationships as an adult." I, know. oh, Herbert, Herbert does not like bullying. He is zero tolerance. He's doing this thing now. You know how when dogs like drag their butt across the the living room. Apparently, he has uh, he wants to go one better, so what he does is he sits on his butthole, and then he does circles, like he's spinning himself around, like the, those old toys. He's doing it right now. I wish I had a fucking video camera. It started out from him trying to bite something on his back or his tail, and uh, maybe he just likes the feeling on his butthole. <laughs> you can hear him patting. Oh, now I got embarrassed because I'm looking at him. Anyway, she writes... um, God damn it. (sighs) She writes, I know I should forgive the people who bullied me that they were children too, but it's still something I seem to define myself by. Today I live with depression and anxiety, and I see myself slipping into that feeling of being, uh quote, the victim very easily. Every terrible thing that happens to me isn't an isolated incident, but part of a stream of shitty events that define my life. Wow, I'm at two hours already. Holy shit. Um... Any positive experiences with your abusers? Being bullied made me very lonely. Being lonely made me very good at watching people. And today I have astronomical levels of empathy, which can be both a blessing and a curse. A couple of people who bullied me have since spoken to me as adults and apologized. Maybe they meant it, but I can't help thinking they're just doing it to make themselves feel better without a thought as to whether I want that stuff dragged up again 10 years later. Darkest Thoughts. Uh, I find stories of child abuse intensely fascinating and I don't know why. I would never harm a child and I have no sexual interest in children, but I find myself particularly interested in stories of people who are abused as children uh, in their recovery. When I was a teenager myself, I used to day- daydream about being serviced sexually by other girls in my class. I think it was my brain's way of getting revenge on them for bullying me so badly. Uh, Darkest Secrets. I don't know if I have any. I used to go through my dad's sock drawer, dig out his porn stash, and masturbate to the women in it. And she puts in parentheses, didn't we all? Um, By the way, I never knew that uh, women did it until about five years ago. Um, And women who are are straight. Um, Masturbation became a bit of an obsession when I was around 14. Weirdly, I think I'm asexual now, but I haven't told anybody that either. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I don't find sex all that appealing. There's something about it that feels very performative. I enjoyed sex when it happened with exes, but I often found myself thinking that the time could be better spent reading a book or making dinner. The concept of being tied up and pleasured has always appealed to me on some level, probably because I don't have to actively engage in it much, and it has connotations with being worshipped and having somebody want to please you. Sharing that makes me feel a little contradictory, and I probably sound super lazy and selfish, but it's the closest way I can think to explain it. I don't think it sounds lazy or selfish um, at all. I th- I think it's... um. I just think our our sexualities are so complex and fascinating. Um, I'm just endlessly fascinated by what, what moves people. Um, What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would apologize to my ex-boyfriend for rejecting his sexual advances so often. I didn't know I was asexual or I was ignoring it. I'm not sure which. I want him to know how intensely I loved him, how attracted to him I was, and how much I truly miss him. I'm sorry for not understanding myself sooner. What, if anything, do you wish for? All I've ever wanted out of life is a best friend and companion to go through life with, somebody to hold in bed and watch TV with and go exploring with. For a long time, I thought that was my ex. Now I'm closer to knowing what I want, a comfortable poly-slash-open relationship where my partner is free to go elsewhere for sex if they need it and come to me for cuddles and adventures. Have you shared these things with others? None of this sexual revenge stuff. My best friend and my ex boyfriend know I wanted an open relationship and my ex was totally up for it. I don't think that was the reason we broke up. It was just a big emotional mess for a large part of our relationship. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel like I've cleared something up in my head that I didn't realize was there. I love to when people have epiphanies when they're, when they're writing, f- filling out the surveys. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thought or experiences. This stuff can feel like a big deal, but it's not really. It's easy to get caught up in working out why you are the way you are. That stuff is important, but make sure you dedicate some space in your mind to thinking about what you want and need now. High five and amen. This is, these last two are pretty dark. Um, and. Um, I'm going to read them anyway. This is from a guy who calls himself I'm okay. And he is uh in his 50s. He is bisexual. Um and he was raised in a totally chaotic environment. He says my zip code was shame. Um He was the victim of sexual abuse. He writes, it's a long story. I'm 58 now. It started when I was 11 and continued until I was 14. Turns out that the boogeyman was not outside in the bushes. He was right there in my house. My father took me into the shower to give me a good dandruff shampoo we had to wait 10 minutes for the shampoo to do its thing while we waited my father did his thing he molested me when he finished he told me that if i ever said anything they would throw him in jail and my mother would go crazy so that confirmed immediately that he was doing uh, what he was doing was wrong a part of my heart died that day i felt dirty contaminated defective shamed I did anything to keep the limelight off me, to keep people from looking my way and possibly seeing that Humpty Dumpty had been shattered into a million pieces. I kept the secret until after my mother died some 30 years later. I didn't even know that this kind of thing happened to anyone else until I saw the movie Prince of Tides with Nick Nolte and Barbara Streisand. The road to recovery and healing has continued for the past 20 years. I've experienced enough miracles in my healing that I am now back in school to become a licensed professional counselor. My wish is that the hope that I've gained from recovering from this horrific experience can be used to help others find their way out of their deep, dark hopelessness. Uh, He's also been emotionally abused. He writes, My father periodically, uh, and physically, My father periodically beat my mother in front of all of us children. I have heard... uh, that helpless children who witness this kind of abuse are affected as much as if they had been beaten themselves so yes i was physically abused i used to think that my father only emotionally abused my mother but i've come to see that he emotionally abused and shamed all of us he had a very bad childhood emotional physical and sexual abuse He never had the courage to look at himself or get help, so his anger and despair leaked out on all of us. I think that out of all the different kinds of abuse I experienced from my father, the emotional abuse left the deepest scars. For example, after he started the sexual abuse, I remember hearing him say that I should have been born a girl and that he always knew that something was wrong with me. I spent thousands of dollars in therapy to get rid of those sick tapes in my head. Any positive experiences with your abuser? My one and only abuser was my father. A boy needs to feel unconditional love and acceptance from his father. When a father molests his son, it's confusing, shaming, crazy-making. My ability to trust man was all but destroyed. On one hand, the sexual stimulation can be physically pleasurable. The resulting shame and craziness is overwhelming, however. Darkest thoughts. I cannot believe that my father is still alive at age 85. I have had secret dreams of killing him. Darkest Secrets. I believe that in the four years of being molested, I developed an addiction to all the hormones and chemicals that rush through your body when stress, anxiety, and excitement are experienced. This later led to compulsive, anonymous sexual encounters with both men and women, even though I am married to a woman and never thought I was gay, or maybe it was that I never wanted to think of myself as gay. This has all come out in the process of therapy, and I have made full disclosures to my wife, Unless your disclosures to my children. There are no more secrets. While being honest about my actions deeply hurt many people around me, in the end it's been liberating. My family has had to go through their own healing to help them cope with what happened. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I'm, I sometimes have fantasies about strong masculine men who are confident and carefree, yet loving and caring. I'm not sure if I'm attracted to things that I feel I do not have in myself or if it's a longing to have the father that I didn't have, a strong, masculine, loving, and non-sexual man who loved me unconditionally. These fantasies seem to become particularly stronger when I'm feeling shamed or have been isolated from the company of other men. So this indicates to me that it is a wound what if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to to my father i want to say you wounded me in the deepest most painful way that a father can wound his son i want you to own up to what you did and be the protector of your son instead you cower behind lies and blame me to appear to be a strong normal man to your wife it's incredulous that she believes you and points her blaming finger at me as the liar you are a coward that's some powerful stuff man had some powerful stuff. I had a. That just made me think that this morning, you know, I was meditating and I was just thinking about the little boy that my mom took advantage of, and um, and I just started crying. And uh, I had heard that, you know, sometimes you 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 should imagine yourself holding, you know, the, your little you, your little version of you, and I did that for about thirty seconds, and it was kind of it was kind of comforting, and it felt it felt good to 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 cry and um you know what you just said you wounded me in the deepest most painful way that's kind of what the what got the tears going was like you took the the thing from me that is most beautiful in children which is their innocence and um i think anybody out there who had their innocence taken as children knows how I don't even know what the word is for it. Intense? How? Anyway. um, What if anything do you wish for? I wish my father would tell the truth about what he did to me. Unless he does this, I have no interest in having any relationship with him. I just want him to tell the truth. Uh, I wish my father would pay me back for all the thousands of dollars I spent for therapy to recover from what he did to me. I will accept taking all the time and energy I spent dedicated to healing myself. I think that my mother's death at age 83 from cancer was her unconscious desire to escape being with my father. I wish I could get her life back. Have you shared these things with others? Uh, Yes, I've shared all these things with myself, my wife. Uh, In some sense, it would have been easier to just keep my double life a secret, but it was killing me to have this horrible sexual addiction and keep trying to live a lie. Um, divulging my shameful behaviors to my wife hurt like hell for both of us. I was scared beyond belief that my life as I knew it would be blown up into a million bits. I was committed to getting to the bottom of my unwanted behaviors and healing them. It took work and commitment and didn't happen overnight. I had a few relapses along the way, but instead of shaming myself, I stepped back to ex- examine the behaviors and consider what needs I was trying to meet. It's been worth the fight." How do you feel after writing these things down? Once in a while, it's good to go back and see where I am compared to where I was. Um, Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts and experiences? Fortunately, as a volunteer, I get to work with many people, male and female, who've had experiences similar to mine. I know that there are a lot of wounded married men who act out with other men, although they don't identify as gay. Uh, self-identify as gay i know this because i have acted out sexually with many of them i want anyone who has been sexually traumatized to know that there definitely is the possibility for a life full of hope auth- authenticity peace and strength there can be difficult moments times of discouragement and wondering if life will ever get better but it does it's a process not a wave of the magic wand enjoy the pro- enjoy the process as much as you can uh, as you discover yourself and learn to appreciate and love yourself. The fact that we survived childhood sexual trauma is evidence that we are strong, very strong. And then any comments to make the the um, podcast better? He writes... Uh, I came across your podcast just in the past couple of months. Every night I go to sleep listening to them over and over. Thank you for your vulnerability and transparency. It's only through this kind of honesty that we can look at and deal with our demons. I would love to be a guest on your show someday. And I would love to have you as a guest on my show, and especially to talk about the uh, sexual orientation confusion that um, people have who have been uh, molested um, by same sex um so yeah if you're ever in la um although i warn all my guests i can't promise their episode will ever air and to not come out here specifically just to record um but i can't see how you wouldn't be an awesome guest and thank you and uh speaking of uh, childhood uh sexual abuse um for male survivors if you haven't ever checked out the website one in six org go check it out it's the number one I n the number six uh, dot org and um, this one when I read it you know I'm I'm pretty far behind on the surveys I'm probably about a hundred um, behind on the shaman secrets surveys a lot of the other one I can kind of keep current with but um, Sometimes I get triggered reading them, or I'll get. Um, I'll just need to take a week or two off from reading new ones, and um, so I've fallen about a hundred behind. And I just wanted to say that to any of you who've poured your hearts out, and I haven't read your survey. And there's also there's not time to read all of the uh, surveys. I wish I could um, read them on air but if your surveys never been read it does not mean that what you shared wasn't beautiful or worthy of of talking about anyway i i say all that because that applies to this um survey and um she calls herself uh just a number and she is um and i know she's listening as she's reading this and Probably freaking out and most people email me and they tell me I freaked out when you you said my name I had to pause it and I laid down on the ground and I hyperventilated and I started crying even before anything and I was so nervous and um, This is such an intense Beautiful heartbreaking survey I just I guess I want to say this to her is as you hear me read this, just imagine you're in a circle with all of us listeners um, and we're holding your hand. She is kind of getting choked up just starting to read this one. This one moved me so much. She is straight. She's in her 30s. She was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, she was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. And um, she writes, I knew a series of inappropriate things happened to me involving my brother and dad growing up, but it was not substantiated until about a month ago when my sister, who suffers from paranoid schizophrenia, told me that she was jealous that I got all the attention growing up. When I was very young, around age three to six, my dad was my primary caregiver as he was injured on the railroad, forcing my mother to return to the workforce after a decade of being a stay-at-home mom. I remember masturbating at a young age and my dad watching me. I remember having orgasms and thoughts of a very sexual nature while I stuck objects inside of me and feelings uh, as though and feeling as though I was forced into doing these things. My dad happened to walk into the room one day as he witnessed my brother molesting me. My dad must have realized that he was turned on by this, so instead of protecting his youngest daughter from the monster my older brother is, he stood in the doorway and watched it for years. My sister also shared that she fantasized about having sex with my dad and that her and my brother had sex when they were teenagers. My brother is three and a half years younger than my sister And he apparently initiated the whole thing. My sister, who was eight years older than me, would bring grown men uh, uh, over to the house and she would force me to watch them having sex. She was only 12 at the time and I was four to five years old. She exposed me to pornography at a very young age and I was also obsessed with sex and wanted to know what it was like to feel physical intimacy with someone that I loved. I don't remember a lot of my childhood and there are whole years that don't exist in my memory. However, certain things that men would do or say would send me into a rage because I was absolutely terrified that they were all out there to destroy me and I was in grave danger. I'm ashamed that I came from a family of abuse, neglect, sexual and emotional abuse, and I'm ashamed that there is so much mental illness in my family. Incest is one of the most confusing and humiliating things that can occur within a family. Because of all this, I struggle with having any type of relationship with my dad because he failed to protect me. I guess most people may feel absolute devastation to hear of all the horrific shit that they were subjected to growing up. However, I feel relieved that I have a reason to be fucked up. I was raped when I was 16 when I came home. Oh, and when I came home and began to tell my mom of what happened, she apathetically responded, really, you probably deserved it. I was gang raped in the military and raped twice after that. I have a lot of healing to do. Um, as far as emotional abuse... Uh, She writes, I know this would fall more under the neglect category, but growing up, my parents would not feed myself or my brother or sister. I remember my mom buying little food at the grocery store and then locking it up in a cupboard immediately when she returned. I remember being hungry all of the time, physically and emotionally and psychologically. The only time we were allowed to eat would be lunch where I was given a piece of bread with peanut butter spread on it. And a granola bar. We were not given food for breakfast or for dinner. Snacks didn't exist, and there were no choices as far as what we could eat. I was very skinny and malnutritioned. I learned to make friends so I could eat at their houses. Boy, that, you know, that might be the thing that breaks my heart the most because I've never heard that before. I learned to make friends so I could eat at their houses. You know, I know that sometimes, like I had friends because they had junk food, which we didn't have at my house, but never out of hunger. Wow. We were not given food on the weekends, and I would often dread the days I was off from school because I wouldn't be able to eat. We were not allowed to have anyone at the house. Also, my mom never bought me any clothes, so I was forced to wear my brother's hand-me-downs to school, which I was bullied for for years. I wasn't allowed to go outside for recess in the colder months because I didn't own a coat or jacket. I ran away on my 12th birthday and no one even noticed. My parents often forgot when my birthday was and I have yet, to this day, ever had a birthday party. I've never even had a birthday cake. Oh my God. If you ever get to a city and we are doing a live Mental Illness Happy Hour uh, podcast Um, we and all the listeners that are in that city um, who would like to participate would like to take you out to dinner and get you a birthday cake If you've been abused, are there any positive experiences with the abusers and does that complicate your feelings about them or what happened? I had great experiences with my dad as when I was younger, almost every day we would go to the park and feed ducks and uh, squirrels. I would always look forward to this every day and soak in the moments I had with my dad because I knew that they were so few and far between. I felt at those moments that nothing else mattered and maybe... Uh, when we got home, I would be able to coax him into allowing me to eat a meal, or maybe even stop at the Seven Eleven to get a pop. She must be from the Midwest. Um, that's one of the reasons why I love the answers to this question: is that the, the how we can have such positive experiences with our abusers and such horrifying experiences with our abusers it's darkest thoughts i wish that i could torture my brother for several weeks while he begs me to spare him his life murder is too easy he deserves the full treatment where i first start cutting off his toes and immediately following that i would give him paper cuts between the webs of all of his stubs i would have i would have him carve onto his skin monster I would burn him alive but not enough for it to be fatal breaking each and every one of his bones slowly i would bring in different men to rape him while his asshole bleeds only allow him enough water and food for him to survive all 21 days of the torture and then at the end he would be so desperate to die that i would have him take his own life that is all darkest secrets When I was in the Marine Corps and my unit was at the rifle range for annual training, I made a conscious effort to get killed. We were all shooting at the 300-yard line, and whenever anyone has to use the head, restroom, they are to place their weapon on safe and use the head behind the line so there is no chance of getting fired at. Well, I decided that I wanted to die, and it was an impulsive act that I knew full well the danger I was placing myself in. So I slung my weapon on my back and walked down range to the 200-yard head. I could hear rounds going off all around me. I knew at any moment that the R. SO, range safety officer, was going to call ceasefire, and my plan. Uh, would have resulted in embarrassment rather than a successful suicide so I sprinted as fast as I could and stood in the line of fire with my back turned so I wouldn't have to see the bullets hit me it ended up being one of the most humiliating events that ever happened as all of the Marines believed that I was a total dumbass for not using the head behind the line instead of in front of it but I was propelled to do it and to this day not a single soul knows that I was on a suicide mission to end my life well we do We do. We know that now. And we hear you and we see you. And we feel you. Have you shared these things with others? Uh, She writes, I prefer not to answer this. And then I want to read what prompted me to say what I said before I read her survey. I can't be the only one who listens to the podcast and things Is he going to get to the survey that I filled out yet? I can't be the only one who thinks this. Everyone wants to be heard. Isn't that the whole reason you have the surveys in the first place? I know that there are a lot of people that respond to these, but can't you just read even one response from everyone, even if it's just one little part, instead of reading 10 responses from just one person? Uh, although we don't primarily listen to the po- primarily listen to the podcast because we are neurotic, we do secretly fast forward just to see if you read our survey so we can feel a part of what this podcast is all about. Have you ever thought that there is a strong possibility that there are some people who no longer listen because they have answered every goddamn survey you have, but not one of their answers was ever said on the show? I've responded to all of them several times, but with different names, hoping even one little part will be as important as the other ones you read. Thank you for doing what you do. Thank you for pouring your heart out and that i'm so sorry that you had to go through all of that shit so sorry but you know after hearing the survey before yours um i hope you know that it's possible to heal from all of this stuff and it's a long road and it's complicated and it's confusing and sometimes it's painful but there are good feelings along the way and there's moments of connection along the way and there's epiphanies and feelings of becoming lighter and freer and more peaceful. And those are all there for you. Because um, as comforting as this podcast might be, it is, it is not the help. It is not um, the answer. It's not, it's not a solution. You know, I like to think of it as I'm the cheerleader for the people in the trenches doing the, you know, therapy five days a week, nine hours a day, the social workers and the therapists and the psychiatrists Um, and anybody else I might be leaving out, but we're sending you a hug and know that you're not alone. This is an awful moment. Um, and I do mean that about if I ever um, am doing a, a, a recording in your area. Um, and, of course, I would like to record your story as well, uh, schedule permitting, um, or if you get to L.A. Um, but at the very least, you need to have a birthday cake. You know what? Maybe go on the forum and um, or email me. And uh, let us know what city you're in because I know any listeners in that city want to take you out to dinner and get you a fucking birthday cake and give you some hugs this is now I'm judging myself for being too touchy-feely I'm thinking that somebody's gonna be listening going oh boy is he full of shit he is so full of himself he just thinks he's fucking Jesus uh, this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Jays, and it's uh, an awfulsome moment, and he writes, um, the names of those involved have been changed to protect their privacy. Last November, my best friend Carl committed suicide. He was part of a group of five of us that would hang out each week, every Monday, like clockwork. I'd known Carl for almost 20 years, and I never knew him to be particularly depressed or suffering with any kind of serious mental illness. He was always pulling gags and telling the same funny stories over and over. His suicide came as a shock to us, but particularly to me and my other friend in the group, Henrik. We'd expected to see him on Monday as usual, but he was a no-show. We heard the news through the grapevine through a mutual acquaintance by the name of Ward. By the time we found out and were able to verify it, he was already buried. His family didn't know us particularly well, so they didn't know who to call. We understandably got left out of the loop. The day after we heard, Henrik and I drove out to see Carl's mom and dad and give them our condolences. We all cried together and told his folks how much we loved him and they were grateful, uh, if grief-stricken, at having to outlive their oldest son. When we couldn't give up any more emotional support, we said our goodbyes and began to drive home. In the car, I guess after we'd crossed that initial barrier of shock and grief, Henrik wondered out loud something. He couldn't understand how Ward knew about it before we did, since we were Carl's best friends, and frankly, Carl hated Ward. To illustrate the example, Carl once got Ward a job on the sales floor of the big electronics store he worked for. Not for any measure of pity, but because he had every confidence that Ward would fail miserably and Carl wanted to watch Ward fuck up in real time. Carl wasn't a hateful guy, but he knew how to dole out poetic justice. What Henrik couldn't figure out is what Ward had told him. Ward said he was shocked because Carl had promised to meet up with Ward the day after he killed himself. Why did Carl suddenly want to hang out with Ward? Why was Ward in the loop before we were? Then it struck us. Carl's suicide note on his computer was dated six months before he finally went through with it. He had instructions in his room on how to position the gun. He had his funeral suit laid out next to him. He knew exactly what he was doing step by step. That shifty son of a bitch knew he wasn't going to be able to meet up with Ward. He had pulled the ultimate prank. He'd promised his emotional nemesis in Olive Branch, then blew his brains out to spite the guy. He said in act, I'd rather shoot myself in the head than hang out with you. Henrik and I laugh-cried all the way home. A year later, Carl's death is still something I'm struggling with, but I can always think back of him pulling the ultimate prank. It's one last bit of joy he left for us to enjoy. Oh my God, that is... You can't make this shit up. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Oh my god. Um and finally this is a happy moment and this is a really subtle one but uh, there's something about it I just I just love. I guess I I just love the subtle ones. And uh this is filled out by Cecilia. And she writes, This might be a little more of a recovery victory moment than a happy moment, but damn it, it made me proud. I find it really hard to advocate for myself in my office when it comes to my mental health. I work in intake for a psychiatric hospital. Yeah, I know, right? But today something was happening that was triggering my anxiety and I stepped in and spoke up and said that what was happening made me uncomfortable and followed up with a thoughtful email to my supervisor about what happened and why it triggered my anxiety 6 months ago I wouldn't have been able to do this I deserve to be comfortable in my own office damn it happy happy I love that I love that and that's our happy moment we're ending on although I suppose I could have uh, certainly could have ended on the uh, the previous one cuz God damn it, that was dark and funny. Um, So I hope any of you who uh, were feeling bad when you started listening to the podcast are feeling a little more hope. And I hope you know that you're not alone. And um, I certainly hope that uh, just a number hears me read her survey. I I always hope, whenever I read anybody's survey, I always think, God, I hope they hear me read it because... I know when I first started feeling validated, hearing, feeling felt and feeling heard, it was the most important thing in the world. And it, uh, um, anyway, the planes are coming in now. Herbert's going to run for cover, so I'm going to get out of here. But, uh, know that you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody
0: I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody fucked up in I know some weird bizarrely wit. beautifully, fucked up, I know weird bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely wit. beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way.